editorial loved Monet and said, we can't have that. You need to fix it. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is our first three-peat guest, Marvel's own Teeny Howard, currently the scribe of Excalibur and launching today as you're listening to this, unless this episode is late, which is possible because this is a real humdinger of a character to deal with. Now the writer on X-Corp, the first issue of which came out, let's say this week, in case it's not today. (laughs) Hope you've read it. I liked it a lot. Teeny, how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks, Connor. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Monet is one of my favorite characters, and she's also one of the first X-Men characters that I really fell in love with who made me feel like a real comics fan because she was so weird and because she was so far removed from the cartoons and everything. Yeah, it's like you, this is a comics character. This isn't someone you know from pop culture stuff. Right, right. She's not Storm or Wolverine or Nightcrawler. Like she's, you have to be in the comics to know who the fuck Monet Sans Croix is. Right, which is extra funny too because like, uh, I, mean, I guess I'll just jump in, but you know, like I've always, I've talked a lot about how the first X-Men I ever saw and loved and, and was like, that character is the coolest was Jubilee. When I watched the cartoon as a kid, and then when I grew up and I fell in love with Monet, it was actually through the X Factor Investigations arc, mm-hmm. which was hilarious when I went back and read Gen X and saw like my new favorite character bullying my old bullying Jubilee, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> laying into that mall rat nonstop. But it's great because part of like what I love about Jubilee is something that I identify with, which is just like when people pick on you, you're just kind of like, hey, whatever forget it whatever screw you ignore like I like like I have a very jubilee response when people pick on me which is like I don't really care what other people think of me I just kind of go like hey forget you and like go back to doing my own thing my favorite Monet detail I think in all of Gen X is in the very last issue when they're all disbanding and they're like we'll keep in touch and she's like yes you all have to make sure to call me and then she drives away and someone (laughs) it's either jubilee or page I think I don't remember it's like does anyone have Monet's number? And they're all like, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) She never gave it to us. Yeah, she just expects people to call the hotel and ask for the penthouse. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, or like, you know, or just don't. Like, call me, don't call me. Do not call me. I don't like you guys that much. Yeah. So yes, we are here to talk about Monet Saint Croix, probably called Monet Saint Croix in America, but I imagine she says it Saint Croix in like a very fancy accent. I am not good at French, so I'm probably butchering that. That actually takes me to a couple pronunciation notes I received from a listener. Oh, good. Matteo Manzati from Italy just wanted me to know. First of all, I've been saying Valerio Schiti, which is not correct. It's Valerio Schiti, the artist. So I will correct that going forward. But also, um, he wrote in because I was talking about the acolyte, as I call her, Unishion. Because if you are, Matteo, this is just a bit of data for you. If you're a Jersey Italian-American, you absolutely would say it, Unishion. It would be like Gabagool, like we're on The Sopranos. I've been saying it that way because I'm from New York, and that's like the Italian pronunciation that's always in my head. But he points out that an actual Italian person like Unishone, the acolyte, would pronounce it 
Unishone. Unishone. So I'm going to try to get that right. Of course, she's not in any books right now, so it's not super important, but I hope she'll turn up. Just good note for the future. I similarly also, I've noticed this myself. I've been calling Lourdes Chantel, Lourdes Chantal, like she's French, but she's Spanish. So it's Chantel. Oh, yeah. I do that too. You I know? Say Chantal. I guess it's yeah. Chantal. Yeah. It's Lourdes Chantel. Because okay. she's from Spain. Unless, like, her dad's French. Like, we don't know her. I mean, she's got one appearance besides a flashback in the Ben Robb Hellfire Club miniseries. So, you know, those are all the notes I have. I love Pronunciation Corner. I really do. I enjoy it. I like I like <laughs> getting this stuff right, especially with the names. I mean, it is funny sometimes because it'll be names like Sean Ma or like Ilyana Rasputina, where these are not real names. Margali Sardish, like Claremont just made these up. Mm-hmm. Like Ilyana is not a real Russian name. No. Ilyana is a Russian name. Similarly, like, I think Zuyan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but like, is an actual Vietnamese name, but like, Shan is not. I don't think that there's a sh sound in Vietnamese. So I think I've heard that as well. Yeah. These things happen when, you know, you create characters in 1980 and you're not doing. You don't know any actual people from the exactly, culture. Exactly. Right. You're like, just kind of street fightering it around the X Men universe. You're like, there's a flag we haven't used yet. Do, 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 do. When he was on the show, Fabian Niciesa was like, yeah, I pulled Quanan out of a book of Japanese mythology because I thought it sounded cool. He was like, I assure you, I didn't know how to pronounce it. I didn't realize the transliteration was not perfect. Like, he's like, it yeah, was 1992 it's... and it was not as easy as it is now, unfortunately. Yeah, he had a, a book from the library. Yeah, of he Japanese took a book mythology. out from the library yeah. and was like, okay, this that sounds cool. I'll use it, you know? All that to say, we're here to talk about Monet. I love Monet. Monet is a character who I came to kind of late because I loved her in Gen X, but I didn't read Gen X that regularly when it was coming out. I just wasn't crazy about it. For whatever reason, the book just did not grab me. I was not a comic reader. Yeah, fair. When Gen X was coming out. Yeah, I, I didn't read Gen X when it was coming out at all. And that's that's always something I talk about a ton because like when I first started writing comics, I was really, really nervous about the fact that like I hadn't, I'd been reading comics my whole life, but I hadn't started reading superhero comics until I was like an adult, right. like 19, like, had, you know, started making friends and, and met my husband and people who were like, oh, superhero comics are good. You, you just don't know any good ones. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I am really clear about that because I, I think that a lot of comics fans and I know me as a young creator had felt like oh I have to like I have to lie and say I've you know been reading superhero comics since I was a five-year-old so I can compete with all the other guys it's like no it's cool to just say like I wasn't or in my case you know it wasn't a welcoming environment for a young girl in the 90s yeah I think a lot of women have the experience of like not being comics readers in the 90s because they tried and it was hostile yeah which is a bummer because it's like there were a lot of really great women in those pages but sometimes just the environment to get into going and buy a book was so hostile yeah. that it was like forget it who were you good in like there wasn't you know he wasn't like today like I think it's great that if you want to read about Monet today you can google Monet reading list but you had to go into the store and get back issues back in the yeah, 90s like, like you had to do the whole thing right and like i'm like you know if i'm sure there are plenty of uh of women listening who are who are i mean anyone really for anyone this could be daunting but especially like young women who are listening now who were teenagers in the late 90s and early 2000s and it's like i don't know if i could have walked into a comic shop must first of all walk into a comic shop that's like walk into a comic shop and been like hi i'd like to ask for appearances of this you know hidden x-men tertiary x-men character who's a woman that you don't yeah yeah it was so hard but i mean it was it is is great because then when you discover (laughs) when you discover a character like monet and you're like oh my god i love you and you're like oh you have all these back appearances and then you go to read them and you're like 
what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, Gen X is a wild ride, generally speaking, but particularly for Monet, obviously, because this is just a general, like, in one sentence to sum it up for people who have no idea who this character is. As conceived by her creator, Scott Lobdell, Monet was not supposed to actually exist. She was supposed to be a false identity assumed by two eight-year-old girls who could merge. They were twins and could merge and become this perfect 15 or 16-year-old. I guess 16, they're eight. They become 16 is probably the logic. And she's too good to be true. Which, by the way, I... (laughs) I reread the first issue of Gen X recently just because I wanted to reread Monet's like very first appearance. Well, I guess not her very first appearance, but like her first. But, but after the Phalanx Covenant stuff. Yeah, after the Phalanx stuff, like her the, at the beginning of Gen X, I was like, I wanted to reread it to remember like the Gen X vibe, uh, which is great. I I love the like vertigo ass bachelor art in it. I was like, I realized that I was remembering like at the, the end there were those like I don't know if they're even in all the reprints, but like the the like little like magazine page looking collages about the mm-hmm. characters. And they say all their ages. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, really? These are like kid kids. Because it's like yeah. the first issue, they seem like, like Jubilee seems 16 and Monet seems 19. And it's like Jubilee's 13 and Monet's 16. Right. The Gen X ages are weird in general. In the letters page in Gen X, they said that Emma was in her late 20s, which is insane. Yeah. And that's been followed up on ever since. And it doesn't work. Like Emma has to be older than Scott and Jean. Otherwise, Dark Phoenix doesn't make any sense. Right. It yeah, just doesn't it doesn't work. at all. Because she's, yeah, she is like part of Hellfire and all that. So. Yeah, she's a CEO. Yeah. None of, none of X-Men ages. It's like the... No, the- but Emma, <laughs> but the de-aging of Emma in Gen X is like a particular bugbear of mine. And it's purely because Lubdell wanted to hook her up with Chamber. I know this episode isn't about him. Chamber is so cute in those early Gen X issues. Maybe I just like goth boys, but... I'm just really glad that he was taken off the book before Emma hooked up with a student. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. I don't want that at all. No, no, no. I know you don't. Oh, I know you don't. <laughs> That's horrible. No, what I what I meant was just that uh, as a young girl who grew up liking goth boys in the mm-hmm. mind of me where I identify as a teenage, you know, when we read books about kids and we think about ourselves as a kid. Right, of course. Yeah, I would have totally crushed on Jono just because and also the whole I mean, you know, the whole end of that first arc where it's like, it's cool, Monet, I'm goth too. It's basically the solution to the yeah. problem at the end of the first yeah. arc of Gen X. It's like, it's cool, Monet, I'm goth too. And she's like, all right, fine. I guess I can be goth because I know other goth people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's okay to be sad. It's just like what I did like about Gen X, right? It's okay to be sad of it all. What's so weird about reading Gen X now is that, as I was saying earlier to intro for new readers, Monet was not supposed to be a real person. <laughs> Nicole and Claudette Sancroix were supposed to be these twin girls who had merged into one being. This was a secret. The reader doesn't know this, but it's discovered as the plot unfolds. And it's the explanation for why Monet sometimes just sort of goes catatonic. <laughs> There's a very, like, 1993-ish understanding of autism where Claudette is nonverbal autistic so sometimes when she gets control of the gestalt Monet just kind of stares off into space and you know that's not really I don't know I have autism in my family that's not really how it works but like it was the 90s I get it so that was like the mystery of Monet also like Monet's astral form when we would see it looked like a little girl which was like huh what's that about sure so there was all this stuff what happened eventually was, I have this interview actually with Larry Hama. He took over. They put him on the book. He was like very, very candid because there were a lot of complaints about his new direction from fans. And he says, editorial seems to think that people who like Gen X the way it was are a minority of the potential readership who might like a more accessible book. 
The reason for bringing me on the book was for change. Nobody in editorial could stand to read it. Everybody loved the art, but no one could get into the characters or storyline, which is like, wow, harsh. But the art is really good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've said this before. I'm just like not a Bachelo person, really. It's like just a little too cartoony for me, but it's obviously stunning. Like he's enormously talented. It's just not my like aesthetic. See, for me, it's like it's always when I look at that book, it's the book I wish I would have read when I was like, mm -hmm. because it, it looks like so much of what I did love, right? Yeah, it looks like all of those Vertigo books you were yes. reading. I mean, there was a there's a Bachelo book I have a copy of somewhere. I think it's like, I want to say Tim and Jeff Loeb. My friend, my friend Phil CV sent it to me, which by the way, if you're an X-Men fan and you love X-Men art of especially Cable, Phil CV is a good friend of mine. S-E-V-Y is his last name. And he draws incredible cables all the time. But he sent me this incredible book because he just wanted me to have it. And it's like this old Vertigo Bachelor book called The Witching Hour. And it's just beautiful. This like super inky, beautiful, just like witch art, you know, so it's right up my alley. That's the thing is like, I do love how he draws like penance and M plate and that oh stuff. Oh my God. And, and, and chamber, like. Yeah, and Chamber. For me, it's just like his style is just not that X-Men-y to me. Like, I also love the Mike Carey run, but like, sure. I'm just, it, it's just a little bit of a disconnect for me. It is for sure something that like every time I look at it, it just, I feel this pang in my heart that nobody thought to be like when I was reading, you know, just stacks and stacks of Vertigo books. And I was like, ah, I don't like superhero comics. I think they're lame. Right. That no one was like, there's this book about teens that's drawn like one of those. Right. Where no one was like, do you want to read this book about like miserable goth kids and this like hot girl and her vampire brother? And like, <laughs> right. Like, uh, that's drawn like a Vertigo book. And, you know, like, look, like I would have you know, Anaheim Jubilee, like, like that would have been the book. Exactly. If at, you know, 16, when I was getting, you know, every Sandman volume out from the library and saying that superhero comics were dumb, like if somebody had handed me Gen X, like it would have been over. And mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know. Road not taken. Right. Like, I don't know if you have that experience or if any of the listeners have that experience, but sometimes I get exposed to something. I mean, often it's like stuff with queer content or women, but you read something and you're like, I wish, I wish I'd had this. Yeah. And it's even worse when it's something that existed, right? Like, it's one thing when you read something new and you're like, I wish we had this when I was young. And it's like, no, we had this when you were young. Yeah. You just didn't know about it. Like Gen X would have meant so much to me. And it yeah. always bums me out that I just didn't it was there and I just I didn't re so let this be a lesson to you fans like get to know your other comics fans and ask for Rex and reach out and guys if you're a comics fan reach out to your friends if you read something and you're like oh my god my friend needs this even if they're not a comic reader like pass it on share the love because man there are just there are a lot of books but Gen X is one of them that I'm like I wish someone would have put that in my head. And you know, I know Connor, I know you've been that to a lot of people with some of the books that you recommend on here. Cause you, I try, you know, you recommend, you know, we're both old Excalibur fans in a big way. And I've seen a lot of people say like, Oh my God, I never would have picked up old Excalibur if it wasn't for Cerebros. Yeah. It makes me feel good. Honestly. I'm always like, yes, good. Do it. Yeah. But I mean, that's so, <laughs> that's so real. Like not to get, you know, emotional on the, on the Monet episode. We're too cool for that here, but uh, right. No, we don't, we don't cry. <laughs> we I don't never cry. cry. Uh, we, we wouldn't smear our makeup. But um, right. but yeah, I, I definitely wish that book had been there for me when I needed it. So, you know, take time today to recommend someone a book you think that they need that they don't know. Absolutely. About. So when they took Lubdell off that book and they put Larry Hama on it, the first thing they said to Larry Hama, because Lubdell had just revealed the twins twist, which was always the plan, but they had been blown apart in an explosion. And now we have these two little girls and Monet was never a real person and this, that and the other thing, apparently editorial loved Monet and said, we can't have that. 
you need to fix it. Yeah. And so <laughs> like Monet has to be a real person. So in Gen X 40, which is Terry Dodson, I like the Dodson Gen X, I will say. Like it's again, this is just my like I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just that's more my X-Men style, right? Sure. Now, Dodson's a little cheesecakey sometimes, but in a way that I enjoy. Oh, I agree. I, I think it helps that his wife inks it. It never feels like I agree. I never I never creepy feel to me. Yeah, no, I never feel like Everybody's just real hot, you know? Yeah, it feels, I mean, it feels like that, you know, that Alan Davis vibe, right? And I feel like Marcus yes. also hits that very well. Everyone's yeah, beautiful, yeah, yeah. everyone's beautiful, everyone's stacked, but it's not, it never feels lurid. It feels like a fantasy. It feels like everyone's hot because this is a fantasy and I would like to look at hot people. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's how I feel about it. <laughs> but so then he comes up or editorial does or somebody, whatever the alchemy was, the retcon that's established is that Monet is a real person and that Penance, the mute, mysterious one that ended up on the lawn being who has been there the whole time is actually the real Monet who was trapped in this form by M-Plate, who is retconned into being Monet and the twins brother. That's the part I never understood about it. The brother angle? Like why retcon M-Plate? Yes. Like why, why fit? Why? Like. I never understood that part. Like to me, it was always like, okay, to be like, Monet has been trapped with penance. I get that part. But like the whole, the continued like Steven Universe crystal jamming of just. (laughs) Well, yeah, when it's like, let's merge them all, right? Like because the Songcroft siblings apparently can merge for reasons undisclosed, have never fully been explored. Right. Like that's, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, look, like as a writer, you know, I don't want to spoil myself and I don't, I, you know, you can, you can pick and choose what you want to uh, adhere to about a character, which is something, you know, some people, some fans don't like, right. But like the fact right. that as a writer, you can't incorporate everything ever because some of it contradicts each other. So you have to make choices. Yeah. You have to make choices. You have to read all the evidence and make choices about what your truth is and what your argument is and, and, you know, write with that argument of who that character is to you going forward. But boy, uh, I will say if you guys ever see me writing Monet getting shuffled like a deck of cards and with her brother and siblings again, I've probably hired a ghostwriter at that point. I can't. <laughs> I can't. If any mergers start happening, you're not about God. it. Yeah. No. Well, damn, that's kind of good, right? A merger. <laughs> <laughs> a hostile takeover, a hostile actually. Takeover. And, yeah, yeah. No, I just, it's, it's honestly, it's like the, the merging isn't what I have a problem with. It's when it's like, I bought it the first time, right? Like I bought it when it was like, okay, this girl is actually her two sisters merged together. Her two sisters have this weird, they're twins. So they have this power where they can like merge into one. I'm like that I buy. That's yeah. That makes sense. But then when it's like, also the brother can merge with them. Also they can merge. Like it just all becomes a lot. And M-Plate didn't need to be their brother to begin with. He could have just been a bad guy. Well, I thought it was fine that it's their brother, right? It's fine. No, it's fine. But it just, it all does become very complicated very quickly. But like the idea of like, you know, these, like, like it made more, it makes sense to me in my mind when it's like there's the older brother there's you know right the, Marius, Marius and then the, Monet yeah like you've got like the older brother who's a bad that's very X-Men right in any story structure right like imagine any yeah. YA horror story a girl being like I have to protect my two younger sisters who are vulnerable from our evil older yes. brother it's yes. like a very yeah it's that's, very tropey in a good way that's great right like that's the part of the the St. Croix family drama that I love that I think up until that point it's a really good story that I think Monet as an adult sees herself. Like, I think it's very interesting to look at the character of Monet as this almost, you know, YA character, right? Of this like mm-hmm. badass girl with mysterious powers and a terrible family. 
who's, you know, rich and privileged and beautiful. Like, it's this very good YA story. It's a good horror YA story. Well, it's very, I mean, she's the Cordelia, right? Exactly, yeah. She's the Cordelia Chase, like the poor little rich girl. Her family is fucked up. She's a bully as a defense mechanism. Yes. It's Veronica Lodge. I mean, Richter says yes. that oh, in the yeah. first issue of the PADX Factor, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I, it's, that might have been, I'm suddenly realizing that might have been part of why I glommed on Monet so much because I love Veronica so much. Yeah, I'm also a Veronica person. I'm a Veronica person, which is probably obvious. No me. surprise. No yeah, surprise. Right. Yeah. Veronica, like, right? Oh, does Connor like Betty or Veronica? <laughs> Honey, do you, are you new? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, really. You know, and then I love the idea of Monet then as an adult woman being like, you know, seeing to me like Monet and X Factor and Monet as part of the X Corporation, even pre X Corp, like, is the very much to me the like, imagine you close the book on that way series and here's, you know, here's the Netflix prestige drama series about this woman's mm-hmm. life because she's grown past this crazy, you know, like when you see the story, it's often cheesy, but the idea of, you know, this girl had a crazy teenage life and now she's trying to be a, an adult woman. Like, I think there's a reason that she's the character who graduates from Gen X. The yeah. rest of them, I mean, Chamber goes to the Casey X-Men briefly, but then gets decimated. Monet is really the one who lands and actually not to like belabor the comparison, but it's similar to the reason Cordelia leaves Buffy and goes to Angel, which is the show about being a grown up. Mm-hmm. This is the character who has older people problems. It feels like her adolescence is kind of handled. And the problem is like, yeah. who am I as a grown up? Who am I going to be? I've delayed this episode a long time, even though she's one of my favorite characters. And it's because A, I wanted to time it with X Corp. B, I was dreading writing this character file because given the way I do these, where I tell you about the character as they were presented, I'm going to have to do the twins, Penance, and Monet herself as like one narrative that I'm going to have to piece together. And it's been a headache. I've been working on it for like a week. I mean, I'll be honest, since we're, you know, in the honesty chamber here, I've been dreading talking about Monet, like not because I don't love her, but because she is so complicated to talk about. And there's a very passionate fan base. Yes. Obviously. Well, and there's, she has, you know, and this is something we've talked about earlier, Connor, like she has so many intersecting identities, right? Like yes. she is like a woman of color. She's Muslim. She's a woman. She's the daughter of diplomats. So like, so she has a very international upbringing, which is very but She's not American. Like, no, she's like, not there's American. There's a lot of there's, stuff. There's no, uh, you mean, superhero comics in general are very Amerocentric. The, the exceptionalism idea of superheroes is very American. Not that they're solely American, but that there is a there's I think that there are cultural reasons why so much of superhero comics developed as an American institution. Yeah. People have written about it. I mean, it's like Broadway. There's this very specific yes. like vaudeville into New York American Jewish artist thing that created a couple different art forms. Yeah. Right. But, like I don't I don't feel like it's exclusionary to be like this came out of this time and space. Um, no, it did. You know, so I think it's it's something you have to remember when you're writing money, right? She's a chaotic good person. Like she has a mm-hmm. a moral compass and something I really, really like about her and something I like about Betsy Braddock too is like you inherently, and maybe people don't, but I always have inherently trusted this character's moral compass despite them being unlikable and sometimes violent. I always feel like I inherently trust that Monet is not I always trust that Monet is trying to do the right thing. Right. And that even if she has to make a tough choice. I trust her. And there's like something cool about that, right? Like, I feel like I I really like a lot of 
older media that's often very male, right? Like Westerns mm-hmm. and stuff like that and like samurai stories. And like, again, that's also very American, right? This idea that like, is there some hero we trust to be judge, jury, and executioner? Well, no. IRL, no. Right. Like when I'm watching characters move through the world and not always be likable and have to make decisions and just have to like, that's that power fantasy, right? Like everyone mm-hmm. does. And like for me, characters like Monet are very much like that. Not because she is, you know, a pillager who cuts the head off anyone that crosses her, but for exactly the opposite reason. Like because she is as measured as she knows that she has to be as a woman a woman of color moving throughout a world that is not always friendly to her. And despite that, she is unfazed by her duty and her goals and her desires. Like she does not let the, I mean, in Gen X, it's played for humor, right? Where it's like, she just doesn't let what everyone else thinks of her bother her. Right. But like it also, that writing, I think, lends you, at least me, and maybe it's not intended to because she's intended to be unreliable because she's someone else entirely. But for me, like for a lot of us, right? Like, even though it's not really Monet, quote unquote, at the beginning of Gen X, like that's Monet. It is. It is. Like right. that's Monet to us. I think that you can sort of, the way I have chosen to rationalize it is that the twins, because they are so intuitive telepathically or whatever, essentially created a perfect copy that's, of yeah. her and that they behaved in the way that she would have behaved. Because the out of story fact is, they wanted to keep the character going. In the same interview that I read an excerpt from earlier, someone said to Larry Hama, like, so why does Monet act exactly the same as she did when she was the twins? Shouldn't she be traumatized and brooding because she was tortured by M. Plate? He was like, honestly, I would find that really boring. And we wanted to keep the character because the character is fun. So yeah, she's coping with that stuff. But like, I didn't want her to have, you know, a hand constantly to her forehead, like suffering. He's like, I find particularly with female characters in comics that it's boring when that's all you let them do yeah yeah i think that the betsy point you make was interesting because i see them as as pretty different but there's a reason that i love them both they're really different but i connect oh of course yeah yeah yeah. both of them that kind of like i see betsy as more like emma and i think that emma and monet are actually an interesting dyad because they're both bitches but i do think that monet has a moral goodness in her that emma and maybe betsy don't always have they're more selfish sort of inherently and while monet is materialistic she's not really selfish in that same way and it's why she has very little respect for emma in a in a sort of an interesting way you know yeah she looks up to Emma as like a woman, but she finds Emma objectionable. There's a really great early in like real Monet is here. There's that sequence where they're talking and Emma's like, it's so important that we all use our powers for good and that you use telepathy responsibly. And Monet says like, aren't we sitting in a school funded by money that you got by using your telepathy unethically? (laughs) And Emma's like, well, yes, but don't you think people can change? And Monet says, no, actually, I don't. Well, and one of their very first interactions is Emma being like, so Monet. And Monet being like, get the fuck out of my head. I don't care if you're my teacher. No. I don't care who you, don't you do are. That. Yeah, like you get out of my head. I don't think people ever change. I think they get better at hiding who they really are, is sure. what she says. And all of the other Gen X people go like, oh, because mm-hmm. Emma's clearly like pissed. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting. And I think that... Emma is clearly very proud of Monet and Monet still has very little time for Emma. I agree. Monet's feeling is she's like, I'm a bitch, but I've never needed to be taught like what's right and wrong. That's not how I am. And it is how you are. Exactly. No, I agree with that. 
I mean, and I think we also see that though, because we see really early on in Monet's journey, we see like her parentage, right? Like we see, yes. like we see Cartier being made like a victim of M play. Like we see right away that like she comes from a father who is clearly good enough that her evil brother would try and take him out right like yeah so like we see right away well, I think I think the writing lends us to believe that which is good like right like I think I think the difference is that we come to Monet we we, we trust Monet's goodness more because she begins as like a, a student and we see where she came from and like mm-hmm. but I mean I think I think if you just ask me the as a person, like not as a writer, yeah. but just who's, hey, Teeny, why do you identify with Monet and with Betsy, but not really with Emma? Because I love Emma, but I don't identify mm-hmm. with her at all. If she were to ask me on a date, I would turn into a puddle, but I don't identify with her. <laughs> That's how I'm with Storm. I love Storm. I mean, I don't want to date Storm because I'm gay, but I love Storm, but I like don't identify with Storm. I don't really see myself in her. Yeah. You know and I mean? like the, the, the quick answer, like my gut answer, if it's like Teeny, why Monet and Betsy and not Emma? And it's, the answer that comes to mind is spotlight. Like, and I don't mm. think it's that Emma likes the spotlight, but I think Emma realizes the spotlight is a valuable thing and she knows how to manipulate it. Whereas like, I think Monet and Betsy Braddock are both people that really like feel more reluctant about attention. And that's something that I really identify with. Mm-hmm. I think Monet prefers results. And I think Betsy just um, sees attention as like a commodity, like people looking at her as like a thing. That they... like, I'm Britain's most beautiful woman. Exactly. Like, what does that get me now? Right. right? Like, I think like, you Betsy know? views attention as like a, a commodity she doesn't really want. Like I have her reacting to paparazzi several times in Excalibur and she always is just like unfazed. Like she's mm-hmm. like, I like people taking my picture to sell it, whatever. Like that's. Well, she was a supermodel for a like model. a minute exactly. and then very quickly became a spy because it was boring to just be a supermodel. Right. Like, like, I, like you like, know. Exactly. Like, and she always, I mean, I write again <laughs> and again about like her not having an attachment to her body. Like that's. Right. But yeah, like I think something I've always identified with Monet. Oh, and Monet has similar body anxiety. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So. Monet has a lot of anxieties. She didn't before penance, but after all that happens, she's much more. I mean, whenever her body gets manipulated or her mind gets manipulated, it's it sort of. She clearly has a whole, you know. Yeah. Well, I want to be clear. Anxieties about her body. Like, I don't think. Like, I, I, I explicitly think that Betsy Braddock deals with body image <laughs> issues the way me and a lot of women do. I don't think Monet has that. No. But Monet cares about ownership of her body and, and pers- always well, yeah, feels really and her personal space. She's not a right. No touching. Not even when no you're touching. Back from the dead. Walls up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Part of that, like unattainable, you can't touch her thing, is because I think, as initially presented, this is why people are like, why does Monet have so many powers? And it's because the idea initially was that she seems too good to be true because she, she is. is. She's this gestalt of two children. You can't actually have a mutant this perfect. Well, it isn't. Isn't the kind of the, like, something something I always thought about it that I like is that it's, like, part of why she's so perfect is it's, like, she's our big sister. Right. Like, like they are imagining her perfect, perfect because yeah, the like, twins worship her, right? Right. Like, she's she's even more powerful than the real Monet because our, because, you know. Yeah, the twins are more powerful than the real Monet yeah. turns out to be, but only a little bit. It makes sense to me and I love it because it's, like, I never had a big sister that protected me, but I bet if I did, I would have believed she had superpowers even if she didn't, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, one of the things that Monet has had trouble with since the retcon that established her as a real person, I mean, Jordan White even said, like, I sometimes feel like Monet has too many powers in an interview. You know, I think that a lot of the time people go, because she doesn't feel as much like an X-Men character. Yeah. 
she feels a little bit more almost like a DC character. I mean, yeah. she has like a Supergirl or even She's, Superman yeah. power suite plus telepathy. So there's a lot going on. And I think that what people have tried to do since is find ways to give her limitations that make sense. And I think, you know, Peter David's Monet is not my favorite in characterization always, but I think that one thing that was really, really nailed in that book was that she has an anger problem and it's very specific. It's explosive. It's mm -hmm. not like she just goes around being angry all the time. No. It's that she's very tightly contained. Yes. <laughs> and that when she gets pushed too far, though, she snaps. It's referential to the experience of being penance. It's also just very real. I relate to that. I don't get mad that often, but when I do, it can be very shouty. I reread like the first 30 issues of X Factor before doing this because it's been a while. And one thing that I had forgotten because she doesn't do it as much anymore, but that PAD had her do all the time is that she just kind of levitates around. Yeah. Like they're all just kind of talking and Monet's in the back, like, you know, doing some crunches like in midair. Yeah. There's something very like she's so don't touch me that she is like the earth doesn't really you know i always feel like one thing i love and i feel like i remember this from the x-factor investigations run a lot is like whenever there are moments where they're somewhere like it's like she'll be sitting somewhere they'll be talking and like i feel like i do this with the characters that fly when i write too i totally pick this up from that run but it's like they'll be sitting or she'll be shopping or something and then like they'll hear something outside and she's like hold on and when she has to go deal with that then she's flying she's like what you yeah mean? suddenly like, she's in the air right <laughs> Like, it's like, I, I I was just shopping and walking around on my nice shoes, but now I have to fly and regulate on these stupid idiots, <laughs> like. Yeah, David also made her telepathy much more sort of contained in that it's like, if she's closer to you, it's better. She's not an Xavier or Jean or Emma type no. telepath where she's just astral projecting around the globe or whatever. It's much more tactile, yeah. which I think works. It makes a lot of sense, particularly because actually, if we look at her power suite, and I said it's like Superman or Supergirl, it's actually a lot like Superboy, con L. Sure. The yeah. idea of like the tactile telekinesis being yeah. what makes, because her power is sort of psychic in nature, but it reinforces her body in whatever way. Yeah, it's all connected, right? Like I would say, yeah, her, which her is how you energy. make it work as a mutant thing. It's yeah. one power. She's just psychic in a way that manifests differently from these other telepaths. It's a visual medium, right? So I think that, frankly, I use the language of the medium to do things with art that I can't do with words. And that's part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't always want to expressly have Monet having to have a conversation that I don't have the words for, or maybe don't have the page space for, but if I can have her looking at Warren and Warren gets a little red psychic energy, yeah, that's us saying, this is Monet using her psychic power. And if it's like, well, uh, what are the rules of how she's using it? It's like the rules are there. It's a visual medium. Like, right. I'm not going to write and tell you what's happening because that is not um, the same way. I'm not going to sing you a song about what's happening. Like, because what's happening is there on the page and it's visual. 
I do love the different power signature things that we're seeing. Like, I love how Marcus does, like, little diamondy telepathic stuff with Emma when she pops up in Excalibur. Yep, and, like, little purple flashes. Yeah, and I love penancy stuff visually to signify Monet's telepathy. I think that's really cool. I mean, I think that's that's why we do it, right? Like, it's a, it's it's the, if we're not using that, I, I guess, like, sometimes when people are like, what is that? Can you, like, I'm a fan and I want you to drill down and for to know exactly what's happening. They want, like, like, the handbook version exactly. of, like, Please explain exactly how the power works. And it's just like, it's like asking the handbook version of like why someone chose a note in a song or why like someone chose a color in a painting. It's like, it's, it's art, man. Like that art is, is part of it. What is happening is what you're seeing. There isn't some secret thing behind it. It's a visual medium. The media is the message. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> Not to like go full McLuhan, but yeah, like you have <laughs> like, that, like, no, I mean, I think also With Monet, I think there's always a lot of interest in it in particular because her powers seem so vast that people like want to find some way to contain it. And the answer is really like Superman or like the Flash. It's like, we don't need to explain to you what the limitations are. Just assume if she didn't do something in this story, it's because she couldn't. I mean, also, I think Monet as a character is more concerned with what she can do with her powers than what she can't do. Than what she can't. Right. Exactly. So she just, if she volunteers, I can do this, it's because she can. And she she knows she can. She knows her capabilities, you know? You know, you've you've read X-Corp at this point, like spoilers, very mild spoilers. But, you know, you see that I explore like her powers a little bit in that. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, resurrection is a gift to a lot of mutants in a way, right? Like as as a writer. So many of these disparate elements, like the way I look at it is this, right? Like (laughs) an X-Men character who is resurrected to me kind of goes through like the Brundlefly pod from the fly with all of their stories. (laughs) So it's like, imagine Monet and it's like her Gen X story. It's like her Lovedell stories and her Larry Hama stories and her PAD stories and all the, like the later stuff and and everything like like, Jay Ferber. It's everybody. It's it's Colin Bond. Everybody's just getting thrown in the the, mix. The, like the X corporation stuff, like mash it all on and then send her into the Brundlefly pod, like the fly, the pod from the fly. And then like, she comes out the other side and it's still just Monet and it's like where did all that stuff go and it's like it's in there somewhere but like you know it's kind of to me Monet post-resurrection has to have a new understanding of her powers and how they work and I thought it was fun and interesting to give her that yeah I mean the fans obviously have been most interested in the penance of it all in the fact that starting in House of X she's been able to take on the penance form as an alternate mode the way that Emma turns diamond or as you've established in parallel for X-Corp, the way that Warren can become Archangel. There's just been a lot of interest in the hows and the whys of that. X-Corp 1 doesn't explain it, but it does, I think, establish a lot of the stakes of it, of what it means, a lot of questions that we've had. I like the idea that it's sort of, and this is implied in what Jonathan wrote and in what we've seen already, but it's almost a literalization of that anger problem we've talked about of the fact that she has these explosive bursts of anger. That anger for her often historically has been tied up in the trauma she experienced as penance. So it makes sense that when situations are really high stakes and she's really mad, she just penances out. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, yeah, and that's exactly what that is, right. To me as someone that's, you know, I think that's, that's meant to be a, a very real 
literalization of that. Yeah, which is what it is for Warren, too. I mean, again, they work well as a pair in that way. Well, and like, and I don't know about you guys, but like... <sighs> My worst self usually comes out when I'm not expecting it. Yeah. The version of myself that I like the least usually comes out when I need her least and when I'm not even thinking about her, right? Like when mm. I'm stressed because of something else and, you know, you, you, you're stressed because of 19 deadlines and then you drop your smoothie and you scream, fuck, I hate everyone and you storm off, you know, like it's, yeah. like, it's the, it's, it's not. You know, but but what makes me feel in that moment, what makes me feel bad is not the 19 deadlines or the dropped smoothie. It's that I have, you know, like most of us, we have things in our past that have made us feel sad or invalidated or taken advantage of or like we didn't matter. And in that moment, the pressure makes us feel that again. Right. You know, the night the 19 deadlines makes me feel like nobody values my time and the dropped smoothie makes me feel like I'm an idiot and that's why nobody likes me, you know, and it's all dumb stuff. And I know, I know that that's not true, but that's we live our lives you know, going through pain and trauma, all of us, every single one of us. And like, I think it's normal to, when you're under pressure to have that version of yourself that says, maybe we're just an asshole and that's why nobody likes us pop up and rear its ugly right. head. And that's like, for Monet, it's very much about that. You know, she's not a werewolf. She's a traumatized person. Right. Are we going to get into the nuts and bolts of how this transformation came to be? Or is that something we should just assume has resulted from resurrection? Discussed, but in a later issue. It's discussed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just isn't in yeah. one. So I was curious. We, yeah, we. I found it. I, I. It was one of those things where you actually I'll, I'll reveal this. I was like, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm just going to I'm just going to write about it. Um, but then I found myself writing a later script and was like, you know, what? I've, I've thought about this so much that it is really interesting, I think. And I want to put it on. The yeah. Page. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting turn. I'm very interested also in the fact that instead of calling herself M, she's now calling herself Penance because in the past, she's always been very resistant toward taking that name. Yeah. What do you think that's about? I mean, I'm sure we'll learn more as the story continues. But what was your thought process? Because Jonathan did that in House of X. Yeah. How did you react to that? What are your thoughts about it, I guess? I mean, I... I think that, let's see, how do I say this? I think that there are some challenges that a character like goes through for so long that at some point, like, I think it's, I think it says more to have a character just like make a decision and accept something than it does to have them have like, a you know, five pages of exploding light around them while they do it. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it's like a... I'm hesitant to talk about it too much because I'm writing a book about this character right now. Sure. But like, I mean, I guess my read on it is her saying, I am penance. I've always been penance. I need to embrace this part of myself or I'll never move past what happened to what me. What I'll say on it is that it's clearly part of her now in a way she right. can't ignore. Right. Because it's become physical. Yeah. Yeah. She can't externalize it. She can't say in the way that we as people do sometimes, you can't avoid a word to say you didn't experience the trauma you did, right? Avoiding the word that made it happen doesn't make it not happen. Right. And claiming the name and making it your own can be powerful. I mean, that's what Kate is doing with the name Marauders because they nearly killed her. I mean, it's it's a theme in the Krakoa era, sort of taking on these reclaiming appellations that have been given to us or names of your enemies or things like that that have been interesting. Well, and also, I mean, I think... I think the journey is very much going from being the quote unquote, you know, the girl trapped within penance and penance is a name for a body, a body and a thing. A pe- the, the penance is no longer Monet suffering. The penance is Monet making people suffer now. Like now <laughs> Monet, like, 
Monet the spirit is, of yes, penance, right? Like penance I'm making avenging. you pay your penance. Exactly. She is. And I mean, that's very, to me, it's like, you know, in, in writing a book, I mean, this is a character who deals with deals and money, making people pay is part of her, mm-hmm. part of her. Oeuvre. And it always has been. I mean, I, I think that in Gen X, she was very, I mean, that, that conversation she has with Emma that I mentioned where she's like, I don't think people change. I think they get good at hiding who they are. What she's saying is you are guilty. You have yeah. committed many crimes and I have not forgotten that. And she is a person to some extent who thinks that way. When I was rereading early X-Factor investigations, I was struck by that moment where she crucifies a bigot. Yeah. Because she's so enraged that she just like puts girders through his hands and hangs him up. And Teresa's like, well, that's pretty sacrilegious. Yeah. (laughs) And Monet's like, ask me if I care. Yeah, don't. Yeah, exactly. She says something like crucifixion is way older than Jesus. Yeah. Something like that. Well, and I love, that is one thing I love. And like, you know, there's obviously problems with their own. Um, uh, yeah, but. One know. of the things I do really, really like about it is that like, and one of the things that really struck me about Monet is like, I'm, I'm not a Muslim woman. I'm not a woman of color, but seeing her character that not being shied away from and her not, mm-hmm. not only not shying away from it, but like, you know, the way that we see and learn that she's the Muslim character is not because she's having violent things happen to her in X Factor. Like if you're reading her for the first time in X Factor, like I was, the way you learn that she's Muslim is because she tells people. Right. And because she tells people sometimes when she's angry, I'm a Muslim meeting with PMS. Like, yeah, like, and I'm going to kick your ass because there's all, it's like these anti-immigrant people talking about Muslims or whatever. And she's like, oh, well, as a matter of fact, I'm a Muslim. Exactly. So, you know, do you have a problem with that? I relate to that as like a Jewish person because there's, I mean, Bendis has Kitty give that speech in his run in response to the remender m-word speech where she's like i tell people i'm a mutant and a jew because it's not always obvious and if you have a problem with that i really want to know and i think that the scene i mentioned where monet is so angered by a massacre of decimated mutants that she crucifies one of the men responsible in a very violent way it's also they're in paris she takes terry to paris to go shopping because Terry's upset about the baby? Is it before that it's or before that? The before the, the baby. Terry's upset. Oh, they both slept with Madrox. They both slept with Madrox. And they're both upset about that. That's right. This run is my shit, man. I'm telling you. Like, I'm following. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing the panels in my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not mine. But I, I do like. <laughs> I don't like that Madrox fucks all the girls. I find that, like, very whatever. But I do like the relationship that it then creates between Monet and Terry because Monet is like all right you want to go shopping I can charter a private jet we'll fly to Paris I'll take you to all my favorite shops mm-hmm. and, and Terry's like there, yeah. yeah that sounds good but there's also when you think about France mm. and you think about what it means that Monet is a black Muslim North African woman in France yeah in France well she's isn't she she's it's so it's complicated we'll get into this in the character file she's also monogasque like they she's monogasque so it's complicated the way that it all gets cobbled together in the end is initially Circa Phalanx Covenant her father is introduced Louis Sancroix the ambassador who is apparently an American ambassador to somewhere francophone because he is working on the inside for xavier's mutant underground he gives aurora intel from the u.s government he's arguing with senators it seems clear that he's an american they, they say to him this bigot senator is like 
how can you, how can any sane American not approve of the Magneto protocols? And he's like, I don't appreciate your innuendo. So maybe he's an immigrant or whatever, but he's an American citizen working for the American government. That character then gets replaced by Cartier St. Croix. Right. And Cartier is in Monaco and seems to be maybe Monegasque originally, but is also an ambassador. It's very confusing. In X Factor 200, they establish that Louis is her grandfather. Yes, yes. Cartier's father. They show, yeah, they show the whole Because it's like, we got to fix this. Right. Mm-hmm. So my take is Louis St. Croix is a. French American who becomes the American ambassador to perhaps Monaco and raises his family there. And Cartier is Monegasque because we know that Monet is not an American citizen. No, she's not. Because she has three passports. This is established in the Hammer run because Penance had been established to be Yugoslavian. That's right. Before it was supposed to be Monet. Yeah. She's supposed to be this girl from Yugoslavia named Yvette. So Hama establishes that Yvette is one of Monet's several middle names and that she was born in Sarajevo when her parents were on a skiing holiday. Yeah. And so she's like, yes, Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, but I have a Yugoslavian passport. (laughs) So she was born in Bosnia. Her mother, it's later established, is Algerian royalty, which is an error because... Algeria hasn't had royalty in hundreds of years, but we can assume that she's from, I guess, the colonial regency period nobility or whatever. She's Arab Berber North African. Yeah, she's Jamila. It was an Arab woman. Cartier is, I guess, a half black Francophone guy who grew up maybe in Monaco or maybe in France and then became an. It doesn't really matter. The point is, she's a black Arab. Muslim woman who is from France slash Monaco, because Monaco, if you're not familiar with Monaco, I know you are, but I'm saying to like the listeners, is a tiny principality in the middle of France that some rich people established. Part of what I think is so interesting about Monet is that while a lot of these like complicated things are about, you know, time travel and bodies and twins and, and all this like comic book bullshit, Monet's complicated story in that case is interesting to me because it's like it it seems very complex and in, in a way that feels very real. It's very real. Like real, real people do not always, you know, real, real human beings are intersections of various identities that we get from our parents and our grandparents and the cultures that we learned. And I think that flattening people in stories when we have people, you know, we make sure that characters are, you know, like I was saying, they're street fightered, right? Where everyone has right. like a clear, you are this, you're from this country. Well, that's and so the thing is like, especially thing. when she's talking to Terry, who's just like as Irish as a character yeah. can get. And I am Irish and Jewish because yeah, I have different heritages. And so for Monet, she has this black Francophone heritage. She has this white American heritage from the grandfather. Yeah, she has North African Berber, Arabic North African heritage. Arab Berber heritage from her mother. So there's a lot going on. And I think that that makes her richer and more interesting as a character i think it yeah i think it's a lot more interesting than the you know the street fighter version where she's from you know it just goes like algeria and then like ryu and ken fly to algeria and you have to fight monet right one of the twins shows up in you know berber (laughs) costume and the other twin shows up dressed like a you know monaco casino girl right yeah like like a monte carlo casino girl right because they Um, all have to wear a stereotype costume street fighter i love street fighter but it's it's very it's very that yeah huge street fighter fan (laughs) i have street fighter merch in my house right now Oh, I um, love that. But yeah, the uh, street. Yeah, You've been street. playing the new one? They brought back Rose and she's awesome. I have 
think it's true, but I don't recently, yeah, that you're a fighting game geek. I am a fighting game guy. I, 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 I grew up Street Fighter 2. Like, I was actually just telling a friend last night, I grew up wanting to be Chun-Li, and I had a huge crush on Vega. So when I saw the movie oh, where he, like, sneaks in and tries to Charge and tries to attack her. Yeah, yeah. it's that amazing KMFDM song. I was like, this is, like, I was, so I was like, this is what broke me as a child. I was like, oh, my God, this is such a good couple. <laughs> That's dark. Those are the That's hottest dark. couple. I know. What is wrong with me? This is the problem. Listen, we 90s, were children. We yeah, can't. 90, the media we were fed in the 90s was very problematic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I mean, we're talking about X-Men comics. Like, if you want to talk about messy. I mean, I've talked about this many times in this podcast. When I was 11 reading Kitty pursuing Pyotr, I was Kitty. And I was like, yes, get him, girl. You know, and now I'm just like, oh, this is very inappropriate. But right. I didn't think that when I was a kid reading it. You know? Well, no, and it's like, and that's that's part of the thing when we look at like audience, right? Like, like mm-hmm. it's hard, you know. It, like, this is something I've talked about before, but it's like when I was at a, when I worked at a comic shop, I would have kids come in that were like fifteen and sixteen, and would be like, "Hey, like, I want to read a book. It's good." And it's that thing of like, I as an adult cannot recommend you Saga, like <laughs> because Saga has a lot of explicit sex in it. Right. And I, as an adult, if I sell you this book and you take it home and your parents say, where did you get this book with all of these like naked multicolored aliens? Yeah. yeah, The the girl alien giving the boy alien a blowjob. Like, you know, where did you get this book? And they come into my store. I'm I'm a creep, right? Like that's, that's creepy. Like I can't do that. But when I was 15 and 16, I wanted to read Saga. You know, that's that's right. I wanted, I wanted to read, read Electra. I wanted to read all Watchmen. of those yeah, things. Like that's what I was reading. Yeah. Time. All those Vertigo comics Sandman. that are certainly very oh adult. Yeah. Very Swamp Thing. Yeah. All the Karen Berger books. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, so I was I was reading all this and um, but it's 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 hard, right? Like, you, you can't. Yeah recommend that to people um, even claremont x-men is a little racy to recommend to kids because yeah. it has all the bondagey stuff in it it has a lot of there's a lot of stuff in comics of that era that now is really scary because we have better cultural ideas about what coercion looks like yes about consent and about, about yeah, yeah about consent and coercion so we have we have better ideas about that now um the problem is is like well, the issue for the characters is that because of the sliding time scale, like I was talking about this when I was talking about Kate and Pyotr on this podcast, like in the 80s, having a 14-year-old date a 19-year-old was not that crazy pop culturally. It's now weird, but because of the sliding time scale, that relationship happened in like the aughts. So it's just like a we like it, it, the the social mores of the moment the comic came out are not consistent for the way the characters are now the same age. So it's just all stuff that we Which is also have an, to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also another argument for using continuity as an argument and not as offense and right? not as as like a gospel, right? Yeah, like I mean, for me, co- I've said this again and again: continuity is an argument. It is a list of existing source material from which you may formulate an argument. And it's just like when you formulate any argument, like if you're, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners maybe are in in school and working on essays now, or are writers, or maybe haven't written an essay since college, and that's fine. But um, or maybe you know since high school, whatever. Um, I didn't graduate <laughs> college. No shame there. Uh, <laughs> but like 
like if you haven't written an essay in a long time, but like you probably remember that, you know, when you write an essay, you don't look through the book for evidence against what you're saying. You look through the right. book for evidence for what you're saying. Um, and yes, there's evidence that might be used to argue against what you're saying, but that's not the argument you're making. You have to clarify right. your argument when you're writing a character based on the evidence, you know? And so part of it is like, if you... If you want to write about that relationship between those characters, you do have to contend with that. But if you don't, then you don't. And the unfortunate thing is, is I think it means that some character relationships maybe should get left to the wayside, right? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I would agree. I know there are a lot of like Kitty and Piotr fans. And look, I don't think if someone ships Kitty and Piotr because they read them in those books and ships them, I don't think you're a creep. They're fictional. No, characters. no, 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 no. It's I fictional. It. It, yeah. And it was, it was a different time. It but was. I'm, but, but I'm okay with never having that relationship referenced again. Yeah. Same. I'm fine with it. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't need, we, don't, we just don't need to talk about it. I feel the same way about Cape Pride and Pete Wisdom, honestly. Like, I'm yes, good with not too. revisiting that. And I love both those characters. I think they're a lot of fun. I am good with, quite honestly, like, never putting them on the page together again, frankly. Like, yeah. And frankly, like, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. I was writing a scene once where, like, I had them, like, pass each other, like, Kitty and Pete, like, in the bar, yeah. because I wanted, I was just going to make a joke about Kitty being, like, I'm going to leave, like, yeah. but then it was, like, the more I pulled at that thread, the more it was just, like, really not a funny joke. Right. And so I ended up taking it out, because I was, like, I really love both these characters. Yeah, it's, like, and I don't need to drag the fact that they were 18 and 30 when they yeah, dated, and, like, and that doesn't, we just don't need to talk about that. Right, and, like, frankly. In this story, it's, like, not, it's too much for this moment, like, for a throwaway. It's not. It's not relevant, I think, unless someone wants to say something about it that I feel like it's additive. Like, if someone was like, look, I really, I really, you know, I, if there's a writer who feels like that they want to confront on the page what it's like to be that 18 year old and they want to have Kitty yeah. take Pete to task, like, right. do it. I'm not that writer. That's not the argument I'm making. And it's not that I think that, you know, oh, like, whatever, Pete's a good guy. It's just that, like, I am writing a different story about Pete Wisdom right now. Right. I am giving him a story where if I start making jokes about him, we stop sympathizing with him in that story because that's creepy. So I can't, yeah. it, it's like when you're, when you, when you look at continuity, it's not just continuity for the sake of making the argument I want. It's also continuity for the sake of choosing what you're not going to reference because it takes away from the argument. So it's like part of my argument with Pete Wisdom right now in this story is that I think he's, I don't want to spoil it, but he's got some cool stuff coming up and adhering to continuity to the point where I'm like casting aspersions on the character that are irrelevant just for the sake of a joke. Right. It also just, as I said, the sliding timescale complicates it because Kitty as Captain Kate is now probably like 25 and Pete Wisdom is still 30. So, yeah, you know, it's harder to, to pick that all apart when the characters grow asymptotically toward each other in age. I mean, if you ask me, I would never, I would, I would never, uh, the only real like thing I think of it in an affecting sense is I think of Kitty with, Peter and with Pete Wisdom, but then I also think of her making googly eyes at like Saturnine and Rachel, and I'm just like, oh, you just you're just one of those kids that looks at anyone older than them and is like, I think you're great. And you're like, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> Even Rachel, who was only like three or four years older, it's very much that like, uh, cool older girl. Like yeah. that's very I mean, much Kate's yeah. A, Kate's a girl and Rachel's a woman when they meet. Yeah. Like yeah. very much so. And, and you know people ship those characters again like i'm not saying you're a creep if you ship those characters but i'm just saying like yeah rachel and Piotr are about the same age yeah, so it's, it's the, yeah it's that same gap and i yeah it's just it, like, listen like Kitty, we don't Kitty's, have to yeah we won't get into the mess of it we don't have to we, get too deep into the weeds but i just yeah i think that 
in the very first episode when we were talking about Inhumans versus X-Men, I think it's a good thing that we're not really dragging that around for Emma like an albatross. And I'm sure it'll come up at some point when it makes sense, but you don't need, I think there's just like a sort of, it's kind of like a fandom sort of thinking, and I fall into this myself. A lot of this podcast is me doing this, trying to piece together all of the different stories and make them into a coherent story that makes sense for a character. But a lot of the time, if something doesn't serve the story, you should just throw it out, like, or at least, you know, disregard it for now, right? Well, yeah, right. And I think the question is when you're making that um, in, in your head, and I'm sure I, I don't I literally know what you mean. I think we all do it when we think of the, the story of a character. And especially as a writer, when you're thinking of writing that character, you very much think of the story of that character um, for you, the way you, the way you do it on this podcast, you know, and you yeah, bring it in into yeah. a coherent thing. And I think I would encourage fans and writers and anyone who's, doing that kind of thing is to, to remember why mm-hmm. in your case, it's to create a coherent narrative for a podcast. In my case, it's right, yeah, right. <laughs> in the fan case, I think fans often don't question why. And I think it's important to, because I think it affects how we behave in fandom. I think it's important to us for us to create our own vision of what a character is. I think it's also important to understand why we're doing that. And if I'm a fan and I'm doing it because that character is like a comfort character to me, it's important to understand that that's why I'm doing it. And it's not because other versions of that character invalidate your version. Right. You know, I think it's important to say, well, why am I doing this? Why am I so strict about this version of this character? And it's like, because it informs my trauma and it's personal to me. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's okay to say like, you know, because it's personal to me, because I think sometimes as fans, people are like, this character has to be this way, or this story has to be this way. And you're like, why? And it's like, because it's the continuity. And it's like, that's not what I'm asking when I say why. Like, why does it matter to you? Yeah. Why are you arguing with me about this? Right. And the answer is usually because it's important to me, but people feel really resistant to saying that. It's like, they have to say there's a logical reason. They're like, it's not valid unless they can say, well, because it was in this and because it wasn't that. It's like, no, the answer is because it's important to you. And it's not, that's not derisive. That's like, I want to hold up a mirror and say to fans, like, the reason this is important to you is because it's important to you and that's enough. Right. It's okay. For, it doesn't have to be important to everyone. It doesn't have to be the same to everyone. Your reading is valid. The way it makes you feel is valid. And everyone is doing that same thing. And it's like in fandom, I remember I used to do a lot of like, it used to be a lot of looking for, you know, like the things that I liked the most, the fan art and the fanfic and the things I liked the most were the things that seemed the most similar to my version of things. And the reason was because that was created by another person who probably had similar life experiences to me and read that character and came away with the same things and then wanted to create stuff that reflected that. And when I saw that art and I saw that, you know, that fan art or that fanfic or whatever, and it meant something to me, it wasn't that that creator was also accessing the Akashically true version of that character. Right. It's that they just, they got the same stuff out of it that I did. Yeah. I mean, I'm very specific. I mean, looking at Betsy and Emma, for example, like there are stories I just don't rate. I don't like the Carl Bowler's Emma origin book. I don't like it. It doesn't really match up with my understanding of the character. And it contradicts other continuity from places like Gen X and New X-Men. So I just choose to throw it out. I know someone, though, who's a big Emma fan who loves that book. And it's very central to their reading of the character. So, you know, their version of Emma isn't any more or less valid than mine. The question is, why does it matter to you that this character is this way or that way? And for me, it's that I find the Emma in that book to be passionate passive and reactive in a way that I don't see the character. And that is probably about me and how I don't want to be passive. You know, like it all is. And I think to to bring it back to Monet, what she 
does because of the myriad contradictions in her history she becomes kind of a Rorschach test for readers, right? Like, which Monet you pluck out of the Gordian knot that is Monet's continuity becomes a lot more about the self. It's almost like reading a horoscope, right? And like applying it to yourself. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like very, and, and, and I think you're right, like I think very, very few people despite Monet being a character who was almost entirely <laughs> defined by really awful interfamily trauma, the version of her that most of us reflect with is a victim of trauma, but I wouldn't call it traumatized. No, she has processed her shit. Mm -hmm. It still bothers her sometimes yeah. because bad shit that happens to you that traumatizes you bothers, bothers you. you. But she's dealing. She's doing her thing. She's. I mean, I will say like one thing I didn't like about the X-Factor Investigations, Monet, is that I felt like a lot of times in that story, there was, it was like, here's a moment where Monet has to be weak. Yeah. Like we have to show her inner turmoil. And I'm fine with that to some extent, but I think that it comes down to how you think that she processes and deals with this stuff. I like the issue with Doc Samson where she admits to him that she often has suicidal thoughts yeah. because of the experience of being penance, because of what was done to her. It's hard for her to let go of that and she thinks about killing herself a lot. But there's never any part of me that thinks Monet would hurt herself. Yeah. It's just something that she lives with a lot of the time. Like, But that's my interpretation. There's probably another fan out there for whom some kind of self-harming headcanon is like important. You know what I'm saying? So sure. it really does, I think, come down to more than most characters. I think she is a character where because the different writers and it's not that many writers who've had her because no. Peter David had her for a long time in X Factor. Actually, much like Polaris, who is another character Peter David wrote for a very, very long, long time. time. I think that there are sort of three or four different Polarises and different fans gravitate toward different versions of that character. And Leah has written that very, I mean, in the first issue of X Factor, when she challenges Magneto, can you name like my core personality trait? Yeah. What and am I like, like, dad? Yeah. And he's like, no. I have no idea. Like, right. Exactly. I'm going to go find out. You know, and with Monet, I think the default a lot of the time is, well, she's a rich bitch. Yeah. But I like those moments. Like I, I mentioned the Paris thing because, you know, she's perfectly fluent in French. Obviously, it's like her first language. She's talking to the authorities, the gendarmes, like I am the daughter of an ambassador, back off, etc. But she also is in this very complex position in France where, yes, she's the daughter of this Monegasque ambassador. She is very, very wealthy, very, very important. On the other hand, she's a mutant, she's black, she's Muslim, and she's Arab. She's all of these things that in France are very, are yeah. very fraught positions to be in, you know, particularly like the Muslim experience in France, the Muslim female experience in France is really fraught, especially right now and in the last Absolutely. 10 years or so. So, and that's also something that I like about the character. I was talking about how with Jewish characters, I feel like with Kate in particular, with Kate Pride, there's this scarcity thing where if she does something that's trafe, people are like, she shouldn't do that. She's a Jewish character. I like that Monet 
is culturally Muslim and identifies as Muslim and feels strongly about being Muslim, but isn't particularly observant. No, she she is. I mean, not that this defines observancy, but like she, you know, she does not wear a hijab. She drinks alcohol. That's like she drinks alcohol. Yeah. She has premarital sex. She doesn't seem to go to mosque. Like for her, it's like this is part of me, but I'm not religious. Well, right. Like a lot of like a lot of right. people. And it's, it's something you see so much of with Christian characters. Exactly. Right? Everyone turns up for Christmas, but none of these people are going to church on Sunday. Like right. Almost all the X Men are Christian nominally, but with Rain or someone like that, you're like this is your character trait. Yeah. While there aren't enough Muslim characters, I like that. Monet and Suraya are sort of two ends of a spectrum. And I was saying that I wish that there was like an Orthodox Jewish character in a similar way so that it's okay if Kitty doesn't keep kosher and gets tattoos and, yeah. you know, all of that. Because I have tattoos. I don't keep kosher. You know, like it's, yeah. it's a, you know, that's just a, well, even, even it's complicated. Was- yeah, I would say even that I don't know that it's, you know, ends of a binary spectrum, right? It's of like course not. But yeah, are, I mean, I yeah. just, you just need more. Mm-hmm. It's like with gay characters. It's like with characters of any racial minority background. Like, if you have more characters, then you don't have to be a standard bearer. Exactly. And I think that Monet is very resistant as a person to being a standard bearer. She doesn't Which is something like I identify that. with, with her. Yeah. I'm, I very proud of who I am, but I'm not an activist at heart. I am very, I very strongly believe in the things I believe in. And I'm very much a, I, I love to put my, you know, put my body in a problem and put my money in a problem. But when it comes to like being, you know, a, a standard bearer, that's just not, I never, I, it's just not who I am. Like I'll work hard for the cause, but I'm just not going to be the one carrying the banner. It's just not, I think the people that want to do that have a kind of, it goes back to what I was saying about Emma and spotlights, right? Right. Like there's a there's a kind of person that is suited for that. And um, it's not me. And I used to feel guilty about it. And I don't anymore. <laughs> well, and I like in X Corp 1 how it's Warren who is happy to do that and who sort of is the person who wants. And he always has. I mean, that's very in keeping with his. I mean, he was the first. He deserves a chance like this, you know? He yeah, he was it. the first really important mutant to come out of the mutant closet. He did that in the 70s. Yeah. You know, and was like. I have the money to insulate myself from the consequences of this to some extent. And he decided to be the rich white guy who's like, I'm a mutant. Like, ask me how. Well, his 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 mutation is not scary, right? He doesn't exactly. Read, he it's doesn't beautiful. Mind. He doesn't look hideous. He's just... He's just beautiful to look at. Yeah. And if you're a human and you, you aren't sympathetic to what mutants go through, you look at him and you're like, you know, what's his problem? He's got to get a suits tailored differently. Like... <laughs> You know, it's like what Right. And I like that he takes on that role eagerly, whereas you see throughout the issue, Monet is, like you said, concerned with results. Mm-hmm. Monet is the one who is doing the backroom deals. Monet is the one who is making the important phone calls, but she's not the one who's going to go to Brazil to meet with this guy who wants a big dog and pony show. That's yeah. Warren's thing. And it's less, and it's not because it's a matter of who can fight and who can't. It's that Warren has a different skill No, she can set. fight a lot better than he exactly. can. <laughs> but that, and that's, exactly. And that's why she's not there. Yeah, because it's soft power. It's we're sending our, like, her father's an ambassador. She is not. Right. She's not a diplomat. And I know, like, you know, we're here to talk about Monet, but, like, you know, since we're talking about X-Corp a little, like, I'll say that, like, it was important to me for Warren to exercise these quote-unquote soft skills because he's kind of the only one of the O5 that I feel like hasn't gotten this amazing star turn as himself to show what he does well. And we get Mm -hmm. to see, like, you know, 
beasts rock his mind completely separate from beasts you know beast powers like we see right. his incredible mind all the time to, to build things and develop things and you know, yeah, sometimes work. in not so great ways not so great. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly i mean not so great ways but uh but like but he cured the legacy virus yeah moira helps, and obviously but. we've seen you know scott and gene have their crazy turns yeah and even even you know bobby has gotten like uh, a lot of you know, he's, there's been an Iceman series, you know, we've got Bobby right. gotten solo attention. And it was just like, part of why I wanted to write this book was, was, you know, how do we give Angel a good story that he deserves? And part of it is like, it's by not having to turn him into something else and to just show us how good it is to be born Worthington when you're good at what you do. Yeah. Cause ever since X factor, the original X factor by, well, the Louis Simonson yeah. one anyway, the big thing with Warren has been how do we turn Warren into a cool character? So he is one. Yeah, it's just he is one. Just write him as a cool character. I mean, I am notably an advocate of that very weird run on New Defenders where he and Candy Southern are running that team. It it really has been since then. Like he has that moment where he talks to the G8 Summit. There have been a couple sort of like strong moments for him, but mostly he just is in the background unless he's Archangel. And it's been pretty cool in this era to see him and Monet and Sunspot expressing the specific skill that they have that other characters in this world don't necessarily have, which is like they understand this world and they're good at it. It doesn't have to be about their mutant powers. Monet yeah. would be just as good at this if she wasn't Monet because of who she is intrinsically. Right. Like the individuals in X-Corp are all chosen for specific reasons, obviously. But the power that X-Corp has is mutant kind. Right. Like the, the, the mutant power in X-Corp is resources. Like it's the yeah, it's the group and the and the power of Krakoa. It's not I have laser beams myself specifically. Right. And the the promise of X-Corp is we are a group that does not have to work against each other because we don't have resource scarcity. Right. The truth of X-Corp is that it wouldn't be a very fun book if nobody was working against each other. (laughs) Obviously. And like, you know, there's also the fact of is there such a thing as a good corporation, as good capitalism? Is that possible? And I think that Monet and Warren would say yes, because that's very in keeping with their characters to believe that. Someone like Trinary, who is essentially like an anarcho-communist, yeah, which probably is, feels very differently. Which was why, you know, I really wanted to put her on a corporate team. I think that's She's, a genius, Paul. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, a really good choice, you. She's, in my you opinion. Know, it's, it's someone that, you know, from the get-go, it's like... I predicted that on this podcast, and it was not because I knew. I want to be clear. <laughs> I said, you know, she. we were talking about her on one, I think on the sage episode i was like you know she'd be good on x corp because like where do we put trinary yeah she's she's a lot of fun on there because she's you know a criminal but she's very useful. yeah well i like the scene also where like she's being attacked and monet arrives to save her as penance and is like ripping the place to shreds and she's like all right so what now and trinary's like oh am i am i not fired <laughs> she's like she's like no i'm asking for solutions can we get some yeah. solutions going like no you're like, not fired i'm a little annoyed for now. to fight through some guys when right. I showed up for our meeting. <laughs> i'm really irritated but you're not fired you're if not you fired. can give me what i need right exactly. now right, yeah. e- exactly and um i don't know i'm, I'm glad it, i'm glad it, i'm glad it worked i like it it's very different from excalibur it which is. i was excited about the chance for you to sort of spread your wings metaphorically a little bit and show us something different because i think what you're doing with excalibur is great but it's always nice to get an opportunity to show variety yeah 
Well, and it's it's nice to get a break. Um, not a break. Like it's not like I'm, I'm getting a break from Excalibur, but it's- a change of pace. Yeah, for a, a couple weeks of the month or a week or two of the month, I, I switch gears. It's funny. It's like for X Corp. It's like I read, like I read, like the the business pages on my news page now. Like I, I really, <laughs> like I want to. I want the book to feel real. Like I read. Okay, like I, I love Iron Man. He's one of my favorite characters. I've talked about that before. I'm sorry, I won't keep talking about flat scans on your podcast. <laughs> but um, Iron Man's one of my favorite characters, and I feel like I'm not a scientist, but I really am a fan of. Like I watch a lot of PBS YouTube and stuff, right? Like I really like science sure. and I feel like I can tell when I'm reading an Iron Man run and like the writer isn't really invested in like the science and the technology and the, the what, behind what they're doing, you know, like I feel like you can mm-hmm. tell if someone's just like, and it's a miracle device, whatever. And so like, I really got into trying to figure out like what was a value that mutants could create, how could they create it? And like those things are a mystery. You'll find out more about, you know, what's behind this launch. But it was kind of an opportunity for me to do that, to be like, you know, to do what I love. And and I love reading that in books, right? Like I love, my cat looks so weird right now, sorry. Yeah, um, no, he's cute. Her cat is in the... In the shot. Sorry about that. Um, no, it's okay. I was, I was enjoying it actually. But yeah, like I, I, for me, it was important that like, it feels like, it feels smart. Like I want it to feel smart. I don't want it to feel dumb. Yeah. I don't like when I read books about science and tech and they feel like they're written by people who le- know less about that stuff than I do. And I'm like... Are these supposed to be the best, the biggest minds in the world? Like, yeah, I'll say I thought this this first issue I bought it. Like, it, you know, and I I I also I liked. Um, I told you before we were recording, like it it had a Claremonty feeling to me, just in the specific like it's very talky. It's a very talky issue. Sure, it's a business book. I like a talky comic, so I'm excited. And I will say, I think Monet, for all her vaunted strength, as Claremont would put it. And all the superpowers that she has. For me, Monet has always been most interesting as a character in scenes where she's talking. Yes. In scenes where she is expressing a point of view to people. What I liked about her and Teresa in X Factor is that, you know, Terry is a much more sort of rough and tumble gal. But she's also in some ways a lot more naive. And Monet, who is from this rarefied background, would also be the person to be like, okay, but that's not how the world works. Why don't we have a conversation? You know, like, why don't we? Well, she's a big sister, right? Yeah, that is sort of. And it's funny because she's younger, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, And Terry is kind of an eternal child in a lot of ways. Right. In a lot of ways, she's very arrested development. Yeah. And it also literally because her dad is always around, right? She's one of those characters who like is a generational character. So because her dad is always around, she always seems like. I'm interested to see where she goes after this arc Leah's doing right now. Sure. Factor. Yeah. I think that she has a lot of potential to go interesting places spinning out of yeah. this. She's a really cool character that I like a lot. But yeah, and I think, you know, also that informs the way I write Monet and X Corp, you know, with, with Trinary is she's. Yeah, know, well, that's what it reminded big, me she's of. She's a big sister. Like if something goes wrong, she's like, hey, get in my car. We're going to get a coffee and I'll, we'll fix this. Like it's just, mm-hmm. she's, she is a, a natural big sister. And that's like something about it because I feel like and this is also something about me that I give to Monet is like that I, I see in Monet I share with her as a person I feel and I give to her when I'm writing her as a character is like I'm better at fixing the problem than I am at being emotionally there for you right so like if one of my friends has a problem it's like what's the problem you're hungry you're thirsty you need a nap and this other thing is a problem okay let's get you food and a drink and then you take a nap and I'll make a phone call and fix it at the end you know what's funny I think you just 
we just figured it out. This is why I, I don't particularly identify with Monet in the way that I identify with Betsy and Emma. And you don't identify with Emma. And Betsy is the Venn diagram here. I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm like clocking it right now. <laughs> it's that Emma is someone who's very good at being there for you emotionally. She doesn't mm. talk about it, but she's a mom friend. Yes, as she opposed, is. You know, like that sort of her, like she will be very cavalier about it. But what she's doing is going like, I'm making space for your emotional problems right now. Like, yeah, like you know? you'll, you'll, you'll gush to her and she'll be like, oh, darling, they're there. She'll be like, Here. well, that's ridiculous. Well, Here, go, have go, a, you know, yeah, have a, take it, go see a Star Wars. Here's $5. Yeah, take like, you know, and go lie down and you'll feel better. And then she goes and like eruptively handles the situation for yes, you. But she has let you, on to her. Mm-hmm. Monet is not someone who will do that. And I am very much like a mom friend. That's very much my thing. And Betsy is like a mom friend who's not good at it. Like what I really enjoy about Betsy Betsy's is Betsy's that... like a wine mom friend? Yes. Yes. Betsy, like... <laughs> Vodka aunt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just rereading like Outback era stuff because when am I not, right? But there's just that great scene. It's because I did, I did a bonus episode on the Patreon. Actually, here's a little clip. This is yep. the cold open to the bonus episode. X-Men, X-Men. Zaladane, she whose very name brings shivers of fear to the meek. Zaladane, she whose word means life or agony-filled death. Zaladane, she who speaks. X-Men, X-Men. So that, that's a taste. I did basically like a sort of like radio play of all 12 appearances of Zaladane. And one of them is that story, of course, where Lorna calls and is like, Alex, help, I'm broken free from malice. It has that scene where Betsy just sort of goes into Alex's room in her like lingerie and her robe. And it's just like, Alex, it seems like you're having trouble. Are you all right? And he's like, no, I'm not. Okay. Like, uh, you know, and she's just like, hmm, well, uh, I guess we should do something. Like she's just, she's trying. Like she walked in because she could tell he's upset, but she's completely incapable of it. Like they end up getting into an argument about whether or not she's the leader of the X-Men now because Storm is supposedly dead. And it's like, she's like, I am the leader, find someone better and I shall hand it over, but you have not. You came in there to try to comfort him, but you're not like a comforting person. (laughs) Monet doesn't try. Monet is not here to comfort you. Monet is here to be like, listen up, Jubes or Terry or whoever, Husk, whoever she's talking to. She's like, here's the deal. Listen to me or don't. But if you're not going to listen to me, get out of my way because I don't have time to make you feel good about yourself. We have stuff we have to do. Well, and like, I like that because it's something that, you know, something that I have that I, that I share with Monet and it's something that I've like really beat myself over up over in my life. Right. And like, I've become a more comforting person, but like my gut reaction is to fix a problem. And then when the Mm -hmm. problem is fixed, you'll feel better and we'll feel better then. Like, if it's like, I feel bad, I'm like, okay, let's fix it. Then you'll feel better. And it's like, well, we can't fix it right now. I just kind of want to feel bad and for you to be here to feel bad with me. And I'll be like, okay, but that makes me super uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Like, sure, I'll do that. But uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, How about while you have your emotional break, I'm just going to send some emails to fix the problem. Like, (laughs) right, (laughs) exactly. I don't, I don't know. um, I don't. And I like that because I think it could also easily have become I think this owes to the fact that you also like Warren so much as a character because I think this book very easily could have been like sitcom-y 
Warren's hapless, but he's oh, yeah. the man. So he's like Remington Steele shit where like yeah. Monet is the one who's like making it all function and Warren is just like, oh, blah, 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 blah. but in fact, this first issue, it's very clear that they complement each other very well. My interest from the beginning is making a book about how capable everyone in this book is and how yeah. capable mutants are. And like Trinary is capable and like Madrox is capable like you see him at times right yeah, like, yeah certainly like, certainly yeah yeah but like what he's angry about in this issue is that you know something of his that he's been working on has been um you know and there's you know there's there's a madrox focused issue coming up because he's another character i'm with valentine delandro yes issue three um, which is exciting it looks real good so far you guys <laughs> i've been a huge fan of his since you know bitch planet and i I was so excited about uh, getting him to work on an issue with us because of the, like, the weird, you know, Bitch Planet was so good at that weird corporate energy, you know, like Mm -hmm. everything just felt like walls of screens and noise and static amidst these, like, really tense conversations. I just think, I think his art on Bitch Planet is just, it just made that book. I feel like he's a really good fit for the tone that you're striking with this yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to have him come do an issue with us. And Oh, is it just the one? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, I, I believe it's just the one that he just had time to come do one with us. And it was, you know, it was, it was one of those cool opportunities where it was like, yeah, no, I, of had, course. I had the right story and the right series and the right artist could come play. And so I was able well, to Well, because he, of course, worked on X Factor Investigations. So yes, he's he did. done a lot of Madrox stuff before. Yes, he did. Yeah. And he's he's just one of my favorite comic book artists, I think. I think he does stuff that not a lot of other people can do. He's very unique. And so I was, I was just so stoked. And it was cool too, because working with him, it's like I'm getting to see his pencils, which is like, Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't have pictured his pencils. Like I've only seen his pages so much. I'm like, what? What do his pencils look like? It looks like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's always fascinating. The process. His pencils are beautiful. They look, they look so much (laughs) like his finished pages, but it's like his finished pages are so complex that you're like, how much of this is, you know how much of how this, much of this is ink? How much of this is color? How much? Oh my like, gosh, his know. pencils are beautiful. I hope I get a chance to show you guys at some point when you know when all it's all out and everything because it's it's great. If you're if you're like me and you were um, you know getting big into indie comics and in the 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 image golden age and you were a huge Bitch Planet fan like I was, like this issue is just gonna rock your world. I'm excited about it. I also am excited about the other characters that have been solicited on the variant cover of X-Corp 2. Are we to infer that the five-man board that we know Monet is hiring, and we see three of them in this issue, Trinary, Madrox, and Sunspot, are we to assume that Celine and Mastermind are the other two uh, members of that board of directors? Well, Connor, like any good job, more people want the job than are hiring for the position. That's certainly true. Celine, I think, is a great hire. Jason, I'm just always a little skeptical on. Well, I'd hire Reagan in a second. (laughs) Yeah, well, I just didn't want them to be stock destroyers. No, it's true. It's true. That's very true. Though now God. I feel like uh, if we get to do a, an issue of, <laughs> about the daughter's mastermind coming to work with their dad, we have to call it Stock Destroyers. You absolutely must. You absolutely must. Uh, and that's how I get fired. But it'll be fine. Right, guys? <laughs> we did it for the meme. There you go. Yeah. Oh, and people have been writing in with Cock Destroyer questions. That is my job job, and I cannot answer those. It's much like when the ex-office people are here and they can't give you spoilers. I cannot explain to you what's going on in the Cock Destroyer social media. Just, you know, <laughs> please leave me alone. That's not, I can't, I can't talk about that. 
I appreciate the interest. In any case, I think that's a great moment for us to pause for a second for this nightmarishly complex cerebro character file I've put together on Monet Sans Croix and Penance and Nicole and Claudette and... An event with the Yugoslavian passport. Yeah, right. Then... I am going to go into a slightly shorter interview. My idea here was that the Monet episode should have a smaller episode hidden inside it. It was sort of a form and content thing. Honestly, I love it. The media is the message. Absolutely. But also, as you talked about, Monet is a character who, in a world with narrative scarcity of identities, represents so many things to so many people. And I wanted to get multiple perspectives on the character. So I am excited to have my friend Kendra James, who will be joining us in a couple months for the Sync episode, but wanted to talk about Monet a little bit first. Then we will come back for more with Teeny Howard. We will answer your questions. So stay tuned through all the madness that is about to unfold and we will be right back. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Monet Sancroix, better known by the initial M or lately by the codename Penance, is a fan favorite character with a remarkably confusing publication history. Created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Majerera, she would prove, despite Lobdell's intentions, to be the breakout student of the Generation X class. Monet was a regular character in that book for its full run sort of. We'll get into it. After that team disbanded, she eventually became one of the stars of Peter David's relaunch of X Factor. That book, which was enormously popular, made the character much more prominent than her former classmates. After years as a member of the X-Men, she's now the co-lead with Warren Worthington III of the new book X Corp by Teeny Howard and Alberto Fouché. Okay, so this one's rough. I'm going to cover Monet, her sisters Nicole and Claudette, and the various forms of the entity called Penance. Before we begin, it's important for you to remember that I do these files in publication history order, incorporating retcons into the narrative rather than pretending they were always there. Monet and Penance were not originally intended to be connected characters. Monet's intended origin was very different from what ended up established via retcon. So for a good portion of this file, up until Generation X40 in 1998, I'm going to say things that later turn out not to be true, and you've got to follow along with me. Don't be scared. This is probably the most confusing character we're ever going to deal with, but I have faith in us. Monet Sancroix first appears in 1994's Uncanny X-Men 316 by Scott Lobdell and Joe Majerera, the first issue of the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant. On a drive in the mountains of Monaco, Monet's governess, Colonel Gail Cordbecker, a retired MI6 agent, frets over her charge, mentioning that ever since something happened to Monet's brother and the twins three months ago, Monet hasn't spoken. Gail has suggested that Monet be sent overseas to Xavier's school for treatment, but her father refuses to send her away or admit she needs help. Monet is presented as a dark-skinned woman, but her father at this stage is presumably the white character Louis Sancroix, a distinguished American ambassador introduced the year before in Uncanny X-Men 305. Louis is secretly working as a spy for Charles Xavier, for very personal reasons. In 1947, Louis's first wife Lenore died on their honeymoon in a car accident because her latent mutant power catalyzed from the stress, and the paramedic who arrived at the scene refused to help her. Monet and Gale are attacked by the techno-organic alien beings called the Phalanx, don't worry about it, picture the Borg from Star Trek, who want to assimilate mutants into their collective. Gale defends Monet, but is killed and absorbed by the Phalanx. Monet remains catatonic and does not resist being captured. Held prisoner alongside four other mutant teenagers, Paige Guthrie, Clarice Ferguson, and two boys called only Angelo and Gregor, Monet finally snaps out of her trance to identify Gregor as a Phalanx drone hidden among them. She deactivates Gregor and begins ordering the other three around, but they're outnumbered. 
They're rescued by the X-Men Sean Cassidy and Jubilation Lee, codenamed Banshee and Jubilee, Everett Thomas, another mutant teenager targeted by the Phalanx, and the X-Men's former enemy Emma Frost, the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. Sabretooth helps, but don't worry about it. Clarice, a teleporter who takes the codename Blink, is unfortunately killed, saving the group from the Phalanx. Professor Xavier decides the surviving students, Monet, Angelo, Paige, and Everett, will form a new student class alongside Jubilee. Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters reopens on the grounds of Emma Frost's Massachusetts Academy, which had been closed down after the massacre of her previous students, the Hellions. This new class, instructed by Banshee and Emma rather than Xavier himself, becomes the cast of the new ongoing series Generation X. In the first issue, by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo, they are joined by Jonathan Jono Starsmore, a British mutant a little older than them, who is codenamed Chamber. Angelo Page and Everett take the codenames Skin, Husk, and Sink, while Monet, who establishes a wildly rich girl, a bit of a snob, and someone who thinks herself perfect, decides to just call herself by her first initial, M. To some extent, Monet is perfect. She's beautiful, has an incredible genius-level intellect, and has a full suite of high-level mutant powers. Superhuman strength, superhuman durability, the ability to fly, and telepathy on top of her Superman-type powers. As she's acquainting herself with the grounds, Monet is startled by the arrival of Gateway, the Aboriginal Australian mutant sorcerer who is a sometime ally of the X-Men. Monet greets Gateway as Mentor, and the reader learns she trained with him when she was younger. Though Gateway remains silent, as usual, Monet quickly realizes he's there to tell her something. The monster called M-Plate, a vampiric entity who feeds on mutant bone marrow, has returned to this world from the alternate dimension where he's usually imprisoned and tortured. After Gen X battles M-Plate, Monet tries to follow after him. She's telepathically halted by Emma Frost, who doesn't want her endangering herself, and Monet is furious. She demands that Emma never enter her mind again. Later that day, Gateway leaves another new student injured and unconscious at the academy, a mute girl with razor-sharp red skin and hair, boasting long, clawed fingers. He then utters a rare line of dialogue, one word, penance. The students and their teachers assume this is the girl's name, but narration informs us that Gateway is actually trying to pay for some sin in his own past. Monet proves her genius by writing a simulation on the academy's computers to analyze M-Plate, whose image she conjures from memory. She theorizes that Penance was M-Plate's prisoner, a source of mutant bone marrow, and that feasting on her is what has caused him to take on certain aspects of her appearance, like razor-sharp spikes in place of hair. That night, Penance breaks out of the infirmary, confused and frightened. Monet jumps into action alongside the rest of the team, but has friction with Emma. Penance battles Gen X before Chamber, who's also disfigured by his own mutant power, manages to calm her down by relating their struggles. In the second issue of Generation X, by the way, readers are introduced to Monet's father, who is not, as it turns out, American Ambassador Louis St. Croix. He is now instead Cartier St. Croix, a wealthy Monegasque eccentric who retired after making a sizable fortune in the corporate world. He's here depicted, like Louis, as a white man. Cartier is targeted by the assassin called the Orphan Maker, but some sort of malfunction with the killer's armor prevents him from attacking. Penance begins living in the biosphere Gen X uses to train, and keeps her distance. Jubilee tries to befriend her, giving her the nickname Penny, but Penance remains silent. She eventually begins aiding the team, but her motives and history remain a mystery. After she suffers a seizure and is left in a coma, Dr. Moira McTaggart analyzes her and determines that her skin isn't naturally razor sharp. She's so traumatized after her torture at the hands of M-Plate that she appears to have subconsciously contracted her skin into this state. Over time, as she develops friendships with her teammates, her skin begins to soften, but she never speaks. Monet, meanwhile, starts to strike her classmates as a little odd. She sometimes acts younger than her age, and at times, when forced to concentrate, she succumbs to spells of catatonia where she totally zones out and becomes unresponsive. When Banshee asks her about these trances, she runs away to avoid discussing it. 
Upon her return, she finds M-Plate has captured Gen X. And in Generation X-12, he addresses her in front of them all as Little Sister, revealing himself to be her elder brother, later identified as Marius Sanquois. Marius tries to force Penance to kill Monet, but Penance refuses and resists his control. Marius is forced to flee back to his prison dimension. That same month, in the pages of X-Men by Scott Lobdell, Xavier has a phone call with Ambassador Louis Sanquois from Uncanny X-Men 305 in his second and final appearance. Charles and Louis are both concerned about the rise of the anti-mutant extremist presidential candidate Graydon Creed. It's unclear at this point whether Louis is supposed to have any connection to Monet anymore, since Monet's father has now been identified instead as a different character, the businessman in Monaco named Cartier. Back in Gen X, it turns out Everett was infected by Marius' bone marrow vampirism, and he's quickly driven mad by it. Monet is the one who manages to stop him. She dares Everett to sync with her power, and when he attempts it, something about Monet produces enough feedback to shock him back to reality. Emma attempts to read Monet's mind to figure out what happened, but Monet is, impressively, able to block her out. Then comes Onslaught, don't worry about it. Emma, in an effort to keep the students safe, takes telepathic control of their minds and forces them to hide out in a safe house in Canada. When they're attacked by the Toad, again, don't worry about it, but see the Toad episode, Monet projects her astral form into Emma's mind to ask for help. Monet's telepathic projection, curiously, is an eight-year-old girl. Interesting. Emma regrets using her telepathy on the kids, and they forgive her. Shortly after this, in Generation X-21, Hank McCoy observes one of Monet's catatonic trances and diagnoses her with autism. Monet refuses to see any doctors, despite Banshee's encouragement, saying her father forced her to undergo observation after she manifested her mutant powers. In Generation X-24, while spending Christmas Eve with Emma and the other female students, sharing traumas from their past, Monet relates an obviously fake story. She says that when her powers manifested, her father was proud, and all Monaco celebrated. Cartier is again here depicted in her mind's eye as a white man, for what it's worth, just keeping track of the confusing dad stuff. Gail Cordbecker from Phalanx Covenant is black in this flashback, though, actually, when she was white before, so nobody in Monet's life knows what their race is supposed to be at any given time. As she's telling the story, Marius arrives, using his interdimensional powers to reveal himself only to Monet. This is the first time he's called Marius on panel. He calls Monet sister in quotation marks and reveals to her that she shares his ability to see mutant auras and has the potential to also become a marrow vampire herself. He says he's visiting to hold her accountable and they argue over what happened to their mother, which was clearly nothing good. Marius feels guilty about it, but Monet insists their mother did what she had to do, sacrificing herself so her children could live. Marius says that it is he who made the true sacrifice. By becoming M-Plate, he claims he has spared Monet the same fate. Marius demands Monet find someone to replace him in his endless interdimensional torment, but she refuses and he departs. Once he's gone, Monet wishes herself a joyeux Noël, referring to herself, Monet, in quotation marks. In the following issue, Gen X is attacked by Black Tom Cassidy, Banshee's supervillain cousin, who kidnaps all the students except Penance. Penance slices Black Tom in half, he's made of plants, don't worry about it, and then helps Banshee and Emma hunt for the missing kids. The Operation Zero Tolerance event interrupts things as the Prime Sentinels are launched and mutants are forced into hiding. Hiding at a safe house with Penance, Emma and Banshee are approached by Marius, who offers to take them to the other students if they will give Penance back to him. Emma pretends she's going to do it, but is stopped by Banshee. Emma claims she was just trying to lure Marius into a trap, but Penance no longer trusts her. Meanwhile, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, the other Gen X students are dying of exposure after Black Tom left them out in the open sea on a makeshift raft. They're rescued by Glorian, the Shaper of Dreams, do not worry about it, who alters reality to give them their heart's desires. Monet is reunited with Marius, who looks human again, and they enjoy a cruise together. Marius asks why Monet has chosen this incarnation, even in the fantasy, and Monet tells him she enjoys the new perspective this life is giving her. 
At this point, Scott Lobdell leaves Generation X, with fill-in writers scripting the following issues. Lobdell claims this was his decision, motivated by his extensive work on the main X-Men titles, while later writer Larry Hama says Lobdell was removed by editorial. After they escape the reality warp and convince Glorian to help them, the kids wind up in Los Angeles, where they're hunted by the Prime Sentinels. Everett, believing they're about to die, confesses to Monet that he's never been kissed. Monet says she hasn't either, and stressing that it won't count if they survive, she kisses him passionately. An explosion in the ensuing battle apparently kills Monet and buries her in debris, but Everett is shocked to discover, while attempting to dig her out, that Monet has turned into two eight-year-old twin girls. The comatose twins are taken to the academy, where Penance becomes protective over them. It seems the girls were previously merged into the form of Monet. Moira McTaggart says she's never seen a mutant power like it. Lobdell's intention for Monet, carried out here, was that she had never existed. She was always the gestalt of two eight-year-old twins, Nicole and Claudette Sancroix. Claudette is autistic and nonverbal, and this was the source of Monet's occasional catatonic spells. These were moments when Claudette took primary control over the gestalt. The conflict with the characters was intended to center around Claudette's autism and a very early 90s conception of what autism is and how it works. Would Banshee and Emma allow Claudette the freedom from her disability that the Gestalt Monet form granted her, or would they force the two little girls to separate into their real selves and stop acting as a superhero? Editorial liked the Monet character and was unhappy with the revelation that she wasn't real. They tasked new writer Larry Hama, who took over full-time with issue 33, with fixing the story and introducing a real Monet separate from the twins. They suggested using the mysterious character of Penance to help smooth the plot over. When Marius attacks the school again, the twins wake up from their coma and merge into Monet, trying to fight him. Marius then merges with the twins, creating a tripartite genderless entity called M-Plate. That's M hyphen plate, don't worry about it. The new M-Plate drags Sync into an alternate dimension housing a device called the Universal Amalgamator. Do not worry about it. It basically merges all consciousness in the universe into one being if you turn it on. M-Plate wants Sync to copy the powers of the Amalgamator's guardian, an immortal mutant girl named Gaia. Don't worry about her either. In order to activate the machine, Generation X teams up with their enemy, the villainous mutant Dirtnap, who sacrifices his life to split M-Plate back into Marius and the twins. Marius escapes, but Nicole announces something shocking. She knows what happened to the real Monet. The following issue, 1998's Generation X-40, is the debut of the real Monet, the character we've come to know so well in the 23 years of publication since. Nicole explains that when she and Claudette were merged with Marius as M-Plate, they were able to read Marius's memories. We flash back to months earlier, or four years earlier in real-world publication time, before Phalanx Covenant and Monet's first appearance. Marius had invited Monet, the middle sibling between Marius and the twins, to join him in his pursuit of black magic and help conquer an alternate dimension. Monet mocked him for his corrupted appearance, and Marius, enraged, used his magic to transform her into penance. The real Monet has been at the school all along, but unable to speak in her penance form. When they came upon their corrupted brother and the strange red creature, the twins did not recognize penance as Monet. Nicole demanded to know where Monet was, and Marius told her he had taken Monet away forever. Underestimated by their brother because of her disability, Claudette managed to sneakily use a piece of chalk to draw a circle around Marius and Penance. Opening a dimensional portal, presumably part of the training the girls apparently had with Gateway, remember that? Don't worry about it. She banishes both of the strange creatures to an infernal realm, the one where M-Plate has since been imprisoned. Nicole is distraught because Monet was their father Cartier's favorite child, and she believes losing her would destroy him. Inspiration strikes, and she convinces Claudette to merge into a physical and mental gestalt with her. Why can they do this? Unclear, never explained, don't worry about it. And begin posing as Monet, allowing their father to believe it was instead the twins who disappeared. 
This dovetails nicely with the line about what happened to your brother and the twins in Phalanx Covenant, which is pretty mysterious when you think about Scott Lobdell's original intent for the character. Were the twins supposed to be using their telepathy to make Gail the governess believe Monet was a real person? Lobdell has said Emplate wasn't originally intended to be Monet's brother, so what brother was Gail referring to in the original story plan? Whatever the case may be, that bit of dialogue in Monet's first appearance was clearly an enormous help in working out the later retcon. Back in the present, Nicole feels bad about borrowing Monet's identity for her own pleasure while Monet was in reality suffering beside her all along. Nicole and Claudette merge again, and then they merge with Penance. Suddenly, the real Monet appears, looking exactly as the Gestalt did. But now the twins are trapped together in the Penance body, unable to speak, their skin diamond hard and razor sharp. Monet vows she will find a way to free them, and begins training alongside Gen X again, finally as herself rather than as Penance. For readers, this transition is basically seamless. Monet has essentially the exact same personality and powers she did when written as the twin Gestalt. And because Penance was part of most of Gen X's adventures, Monet remembers those adventures. Under new writer Jay Farber, there are two major differences between the real Monet and the Gestalt of the twins. The first is that Monet is not autistic, and therefore the catatonic trances that were a result of Claudette's role in the Gestalt stop happening. The second is that the real Monet is meaner to her classmates than the twins were, and eventually Jubilee snaps, protesting that she was kind to Monet when she was trapped as penance. Monet counters that Jubilee treated her as a pet, not a friend, and that she found it dehumanizing. She does, however, develop romantic feelings for Everett. While Monet's contemplating getting a tattoo, longing to be touched in any way after so much time spent trapped inside penance, she instead confesses her thoughts to Everett and tries to kiss him. They're interrupted by the villain called Membrane, like a pun with the brain and a membrane, don't worry about it. After Emma's business takes a nosedive, she's forced to bring her older sister Adrian Frost in as co-headmistress to keep the school afloat. Adrienne opens the Massachusetts Academy to human students, forcing Gen X to hide their status as mutants. This means the twins, still trapped in the form of penance, are forced to hide in the basement at all times. They grow upset and stir-crazy, understandably. This arc culminates in Marius attacking the school dance, which Monet attends with her visibly mutated teammate Angelo, proving she isn't too shallow. During the battle, Jubilee creates an explosion that somehow knocks the twins out of the penance body. To the shock of everyone, even without a consciousness trapped inside, Penance continues to operate as her own being. Is there someone else in the body now? Has the body achieved its own consciousness? It's not explained. Lobdell's original intention for Penance back when she was introduced was that she was a mutant girl named Yvette from Yugoslavia, who never spoke because she had been born deaf. Hints at this origin had been seeded in early issues of Gen X, with Marius calling Penance Yvette, and Emma reading memories of Eastern Europe. So once Penance was retconned into being the real Monet, any discrepancies were smoothed over with another retcon. Monet eventually explains that Yvette is one of her many middle names, and she was born in Sarajevo, now in Bosnia, formerly in Yugoslavia, while her parents were there on a skiing holiday. Was this new third Penance, the one without Monet or the twins inside her, supposed to be the deaf Yugoslavian character from Lobdell's initial plans? She's never been explained, so I don't know. Don't worry about it. Anyway, whoever Penance is now, she escapes from the Academy in a violent panic in the following issue, Generation X-58. At the same time, Cartier Saint Croix arrives at the school to bring the twins back to Monaco and arrange medical care for Marius, whom Gen X has taken into custody. This time, in his third appearance, his first speaking appearance, Cartier is abruptly depicted as a black man, and this presentation will remain consistent going forward. Curiously, Emma greets him as Ambassador Saint Croix, and he identifies himself as a member of Xavier's Mutant Underground Intelligence Organization, taking the role of the Louis Saint Croix character. Cartier has not been referred to as an ambassador before this issue, only as a Monegasque businessman. It's possible Jay Farber confused or conflated the two characters, or perhaps this is a retcon. Louis Saint Croix is never seen again, and this remains a continuity mystery for many years. 
Monet notices Emma acting cagey about penance, but Emma waves off her concern and encourages her and the twins to enjoy their time with their father. Monet notes for the reader that Emma's telepathy is more powerful than her own, preventing her from reading Emma's mind. This is a slight power downgrade from the overpowering telepathy displayed by the twins in the original M. Gestalt. Cartier explains that he's hoping to make peace with Marius, and Monet is upset. Marius killed their mother and imprisoned Monet, she reminds her father, in addition to the other atrocities Marius has now committed as M-plate. Cartier argues Marius couldn't control his power, and he should have understood that rather than rejecting his son and his grief, but Monet is unmoved. Marius, for his part, agrees with Monet. He says he's no longer Cartier's son, only the vampire M-plate. In an effort to provoke, he gleefully describes how he devoured his mother when his mutant power manifested and she tried to help him. They were alone, Marius notes, because Cartier was spending the day out with the three girls, his favorites. Penance reunites with the rest of the team, and though Emma is unable to read the new Penance's mind, just as she was unable to read Monet's mind as Penance, Penance indicates she wishes to stay by carving the word home into a tree. Back at the school, Monet apologizes to her father for speaking to him harshly. She knows he just wants to show his dedication to his children, and agrees it isn't too late for him to be a more present father. Cartier shocks her by telling her he's going to prove himself by withdrawing her from the Massachusetts Academy, something she'd asked for many times when complaining about her classmates. The story continues in the 1999 Generation X Annual, where we learn Cartier plans to transfer Monet to a boarding school in Switzerland so they can be closer to each other. She confesses to Everett that she doesn't always feel at home at the Massachusetts Academy, given everything that's happened to her, and asks if he would miss her if she left. After one last mission to help rescue her old rival Jubilee, Monet decides to go to the Swiss school and bids everyone goodbye in a characteristically cold and abrasive fashion. She does admit she understands now what the X-Men see in Jubilee, and on her way to the car with her father and the twins, she plants a big goodbye kiss on a startled Everett in front of everyone. The twins Nicole and Claudette have not appeared on page again in the two decades of publication since that annual, except for one scene in the Krakoa era that we'll address at the end of this segment, so hold that thought. The departure of the twins, at any rate, will make this character file a lot more straightforward from here. We're only 20 minutes in. <laughs> Monet next appears in Generation X 60, where an arc called Monet the Vampire Slayer begins, in which she fights vampires at her new boarding school. Don't worry about it. After that arc concludes in issue 62, Monet returns to Massachusetts and rejoins Gen X. She and Everett quickly begin a romantic relationship, which hurts Jubilee's feelings, as Everett is her best friend, but also the secret object of her affections. Meanwhile, Emma's older sister Adrienne, now the new white queen of the Hellfire Club, don't worry about it, returns and blackmails Emma into reinstating her as headmistress at the school. She begins slowly drumming up anti-mutant sentiment around the academy, and Monet reveals herself publicly as a mutant when some bullies attack a student they think might be one. Eventually, an anti-mutant riot breaks out at the school, whipped up by Adrienne behind the scenes. Everett is killed when a bomb Adrienne had set explodes during the confusion. Monet is devastated, but perhaps not as devastated as Emma and Banshee, who close the school and tell Gen X they can direct operations themselves from now on, as their teachers have failed them. The kids decide to devote themselves to helping young people in need, but Monet has no real interest in charity and becomes more and more violent in battle, her bottled-up fury at Everett's death beginning to manifest as bursts of sudden and uncontrollable rage. She at least finally bonds with Jubilee, as they argue over the loss of Everett until Monet makes Jubilee cry. Embracing Jubilee, Monet comes to appreciate their shared grief, and the two become friendlier. Meanwhile, the mysterious third incarnation of Penance is sent to live with Cartier and the twins in Monaco, as Emma feels the school is no longer safe for her. Gen X disbands in the final issue, 2001's Generation X 75, as the kids have totally lost faith in Banshee and Emma. Sean's drinking himself half to death after Moira McTaggart was murdered by Mystique, and Emma's been acting strangely ever since Adrienne disappeared, because Emma murdered Adrienne in cold blood as vengeance for what happened to Everett. Jono joins the X-Men under new writer Joe Casey, while the other students depart the Academy to seek new fortunes. 
Monet asks them all to keep in touch, but after she leaves, they realize she never gave any of them her phone number. Monet next appears alongside her former classmates Jubilee and Paige in Uncanny X-Men 403 by Joe Casey, where the three girls join up with X-Corps, that's X-C-O-R-P-S, Banshee's new paramilitary operation based in Paris. While they're skeptical of Banshee's new mutant police project, they're worried he's losing it and want to keep an eye on him. Their instincts prove to be correct when Mystique, who has infiltrated X-Corps, teams up with one of the ladies' mastermind to destroy the organization from within and slit Banshee's throat, leaving him for dead and robbing him of his mutant power. With X-Corps disbanded, Monet and the other girls join up with the European branch of X-Corp, hard P, no S, I realize this is confusing, it's short for X-Corporation, and it's Xavier's new global mutant defense initiative, taking the X-Men worldwide. In New X-Men 128 by Grant Morrison, Monet and other X-Corp Europe agents are dispatched to fight the monstrous Weapon 12 in the Channel Tunnel, where they discover this genetic experiment is able to overwhelm and assimilate the minds of his victims. Over the course of the arc, X-Corp agent Darkstar is absorbed into the hive, and Monet panics, but the zombified Darkstar is tragically killed by the vigilante Phantom X. Do not worry about him right now. Monet leads the survivors of the train to safety. My understanding is that Monet is the character Morrison had initially marked for death in this arc, and editorial asked them to substitute the less prominent and less popular character of Darkstar. And well, you know I love Grant Morrison, but I think that was a good edit. Again as a member of X-Corp Europe, Monet teams up with the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men 410, now written by Chuck Austin, where she's incredibly rude to new member Stacey X, a former sex worker, dismissing her as simply a mutant prostitute tagging along. It's Stacy, though, who ultimately saves the team from Black Tom Cassidy later in the arc. Four years later, Monet returns in the 2006 launch of X-Factor Volume 3 by Peter David, which will come to be known by fans as X-Factor Investigations. In the wake of the decimation, an event where all but about 200 mutants on Earth have been depowered, Jamie Madrox the Multiple Man opens a new detective agency based out of New York City's Mutant Town, which is now reeling in the fallout of M-Day. Madrox invites Monet, Banshee's daughter Siren, and former X-Force member Richter, all X-Corp agents, to join his new firm. Monet first appears when she rescues Richter from a suicide attempt brought on by his despair at being depowered in the decimation. Monet's skin tone is notably lighter in this book compared to her previous appearances, which caused consternation among fans. Peter David addressed this in the letters page in issue 4, explaining that he was researching Monet's backstory because it was very confusing and he wasn't sure about her ethnic heritage. He said the plan was probably to darken Monet's skin tone, but it takes many, many more issues before that happens. In the meantime, Monet takes to the new job, employing her telepathy to help Madrox solve cases, and finds herself more emotionally involved in crimes against women than she had anticipated, perhaps because of her experience with Marius as penance. After the death of Banshee in the event Deadly Genesis, Monet is troubled by Siren's denial of reality, and notes she was probably more of a daughter to Banshee than Siren, whom he never knew as a child, ever was. Though Monet is not afraid of registration, as she hasn't had a secret identity since her time with Gen X, she joins the rest of X-Factor in opposing the government's superhero registration policy during the Civil War event. She then winds up having sex with Madrox one drunken night, but it turns out his duplicates, who've been developing minds of their own and distinct personality traits, seduced both her and Siren. This plot is kind of exhausting, don't worry about it. The most notable thing about it is that Monet is clearly intended to be older than 18 here, as though she's aged up in real time rather than Marvel time in the five years since the cancellation of Generation X. I don't really have a problem with that, but it's a bit awkward because characters like Husk and Jubilee, who are in other books, don't seem to have aged up alongside her, or at least not as much as she has. Anyway, Monet's first major character beat in this new book comes in issue 13, where we see the team's therapy sessions with Dr. Leonard Sampson. Monet admits that the trauma of being trapped within penance has never left her, and she has suicidal thoughts every day of her life. 
She says she acts arrogant and cold as a defense mechanism, because if she allows herself to be weak, she'll crumble. Shortly after this, the fact that she and Siren are both sleeping with Madrox's dupes comes to light, and Monet physically attacks her duplicate in a fit of rage. She's not mad at Siren, though, and takes her on a shopping trip to Paris so the two women can work through it. There they discover a mass murder of decimated former mutants by bigots, one of whom Monet violently crucifies in revenge. She uses her status as a diplomat's daughter to blow off the police, and they return to New York. Bonded with Siren after this adventure, Monet begins working as a duo with her more often. Meanwhile, Penance reappears in the miniseries Loners by C.B. Sabalski, with the character now called Hollow, reflecting the body's status as a shell for imprisoned characters, and also the fact that another character took the codename Penance for a bit in the interim, but you really don't need to worry about that. Imprisoned and tortured by drug dealers harvesting mutant growth hormone, she's rescued by the superhero team called the Loners, and bonds with the hero Phil Yurick, who finds himself drawn to her. Who is this third incarnation of Penance, or Hollow, remains an unanswered question. But Sabowski told fans there was definitely a new person trapped inside the body, and advised readers wait and see. We are still waiting. In the wake of the 2007 franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, X-Factor is left reeling when their young friend Layla Miller, an apparently precognitive 13-year-old, don't worry about it, truly, do not worry about it, is lost in a dystopian alternate future. Wolfsbane also leaves the team. I forgot to mention Wolfsbane was there at all, didn't I? But she was there. Don't worry about it, I guess. Guido Caracella, aka Strong Guy, is also there as part of X Factor, for the record. Siren reveals to Monet that she's pregnant with Madrox's child, and Monet comforts her. Shortly thereafter, the villain Arcade rigs Mutant Town with explosives, and X Factor decides to relocate to Detroit. In Detroit, Monet battles the Avenger She-Hulk due to a misunderstanding, and it's honestly pretty cool. The team then expands by two members, former X-Men Darwin and Longshot. Monet is attracted to Longshot and doesn't notice that Darwin has a massive crush on her. After Siren gives birth to her son, Madrox touches the baby and absorbs it, revealing that Siren has slept with a duplicate, and therefore the baby was simply another dupe. Shattered by this, Siren banishes Madrox from the agency, and Monet sides with Siren despite Siren's deteriorating mental state. Their next case gets Monet possessed by a mysterious villain called Cortex, and under his influence she begins flirting with Darwin to distract him. Darwin figures out something is wrong while they're alone together with the woman they're protecting from Cortex, and Monet attacks. Siren arrives, also suspicious of Monet's odd behavior, and the two fight her while Longshot tracks down and attacks Cortex. Monet needs only the split-second opportunity to push him out of her mind, and she's left triggered and furious by the reminder of being trapped in her own body earlier as penance. Monet goes to find Cortex, and even after he's revealed to be a rogue duplicate of Madrox, she tries to murder him with a punch through the chest. Cortex teleports away, where he's stopped by Madrox and Layla in the future. Don't worry about it. They return to X-Factor, with Layla now considerably aged up so that a creepy romance plot between her and Madrox can happen. I really don't want you to worry about that. Siren leaves the team, unable to coexist with Madrox. Monet decides to quit with her in solidarity and moves to Ireland to keep an eye on her friend at Cassidy Keep. X-Factor ends up moving back to New York City. In 2012's X-Factor 200, renumbered for this milestone issue and from this point on presented as a continuation of the 80s and 90s X-Factor Volume 1, which had ended with issue 149, Monet returns to America in an effort to convince Madrox to visit Siren and make peace with her. Siren's mental health continues to get worse, and Monet is worried about her. She isn't expecting a visit from X-Factor's government contact Valerie Cooper, who tells her Cartier Sancroix has been kidnapped by terrorists who are threatening to behead him on live television if their demand isn't met. Their demand? They want Monet. In this issue, the members of the team are given little handbook-style profiles to catch up new readers. Here, Louis Sancroix is finally explained via retcon as Monet's grandfather, Cartier's father, tying up that continuity problem from the 90s nearly 20 years later. 
Monet wants to take on the terrorists herself, but Val won't tell her who's taken Cartier. Monet's so enraged, she shatters her cell phone in her fist, but Guido manages to get some leads from his contacts. After an adventure in Latveria, the two of them strike out to find Cartier and fly to South America where he's being held. Their plane is shot out of the sky, and Monet is captured by the evil sorcerer Baron Mordo, who's behind the kidnapping. Mordo has terminal cancer and believes draining Monet's life force will cure him. He knows about her time as penance, when she proved to be a potent source of mutant life energy for her brother. Mordo uses his magic to make Monet believe she's trapped his penance again and begins feeding on her. She's rescued by Guido, and they team up to fight mutant response division agents sent by the Super Sentinel Bastion. Do not worry about it, it's part of the Second Coming event. Over her father's objections, Monet offers herself to Mordo so that he can teleport them back to the States. Using her telepathy, Monet makes Mordo believe he has killed her and cured himself, then lets him go, still dying from his terminal illness. This storyline marks the last on-page appearance to date of Cartier Sancroix, who returns to Monaco after he's rescued. In X-Factor 210, Monet helps a woman named Noelle Blanc cope with guilt and PTSD from her military service, where she was responsible for accidentally launching an airstrike on innocent children. Monet has reservations about editing Noelle's memories, which is what Noelle wants, but ultimately decides to do it. Six issues later, at an anti-Muslim protest in New York, Monet, Guido, and Siren, who came back to the team and is now using the codename Banshee in honor of her father, but I'm going to keep calling her Siren in this character file if that's okay with you, protect Mayor J. Jonah Jameson as he tries to disperse the protesters. Monet feels inspired to declare to the assembled Islamophobic bigots that she is a Muslim, surprising Guido, who wasn't aware. As the protest escalates, Noel takes advantage of the chaos to attempt to assassinate Mayor Jameson. Guido steps in front of him to take the bullet, not realizing it's a super bullet that can kill him. Dying in Monet's arms, Guido confesses to her that he's in love with her. She gets him to the hospital, where the team is devastated when he dies on the table. But then, he gets better, somehow. Monet blames herself, realizing her edits to Noelle's memories must have led to the assassination attempt. She threatens Jameson until he reveals Noelle is actually a black ops agent called Ballistique, who had been mind-wiped after she went rogue and began killing people as a mercenary. Monet's tampering with Noelle's mind destroyed the false memory she'd been given of her wartime service, and reawakened Ballistique. In a towering rage, Monet enters Ballistique's mind again, and this time telepathically places her in a permanent coma. She helps Guido recover, and is surprised when he kisses her, but they don't have time to hash it out because the whole thing happens with Wolfsbane's mystical pregnancy. Don't worry about it, I literally forgot to mention Wolfsbane returning to the team. I'm not a big fan of Peter David's Wolfsbane, is that not obvious? Because that's just, that's what I'm trying to say. So, you know. Pay it no mind. Meanwhile, Hollow, remember Hollow, the third penance? Hollow reappears in Avengers Academy by Christus Gage as one of the students at the titular Academy. You don't have to worry about it. I'm just keeping you posted. Back in X-Factor, Madrox is killed by a demon, and it's revealed that Layla's real mutant power is to resurrect people, but she cannot bring back their souls. This is how Guido recovered from his apparent death, and he's been soulless ever since. Monet objects to using this power on Madrox, but it turns out too much time has passed anyway, and Layla can't revive him. He gets better, don't worry about it. Monet is horrified by Guido's soulless existence and wants him off the team since he now has no conscience. Havoc and Polaris arrive, declaring they're replacing Madrox as the leaders of X-Factor Investigations, interrupting the argument. When Madrox comes back four issues later, Monet assumes Layla has resurrected him and is furious. After they clear up that Layla wasn't involved in Madrox's resurrection, Layla admits to Monet that she resurrected Guido because of her knowledge of the future. If Guido had died, Monet would have lost herself in grief. Last digression, I promise. During the company-wide event Avengers vs. X-Men, Hollow, remember Hollow, sides with the X-Men students held captive at the Avengers Academy. This is her final appearance to date. 
Back in X-Factor, Monet slowly opens up to Guido's advances despite the tension between them and agrees to go on a date with him. When he ditches her in the middle of the date to fight a villain, she's pissed. She only gets more pissed in the following issue when Guido almost allows a hostage to die because he doesn't care. Monet calls him a soulless monster, and he angrily quits the team. This sends Monet spiraling into anger herself, and she begins lashing out at all her teammates. Soon thereafter, Monet's body is taken over by X-Factor's ally Pip the Troll, don't worry about him either, who began body hopping after he was shot in the head. After she's freed, Monet is furious that control over her body was taken from her yet again, and enraged that her teammates found the situation funny. Polaris slaps her to get her to focus on the threat, demons again because it's late-stage Peter David X-Factor, and Pip ends up slipping away to avoid getting wrecked when Monet has time. Then comes all the stuff with the Hell Lords, do not worry about it. Former teammate Darwin is hunting Wolfsbane's son Tyr because of an apocalyptic prophecy. Monet ends up fighting Darwin and Guido, who's also trying to capture Tyr. Darwin, who has absorbed death sense powers from the goddess Hela, don't worry about it, sees that Monet is going to die soon. And after she goes toe-to-toe with the Hell Lord Pluto and is defeated by the god's power, Monet begins bleeding internally. Layla informs her she's dying, but Monet refuses to tell the rest of the team because the situation with the demons is still critical. Guido turns out to be working for Mephisto, because, sure, and he and Monet fight for a bit until, weakened by blood loss, she loses the battle. Guido beats her so severely that she suffers a brain aneurysm from the pre-existing bleed and dies. Despite his soulless existence, Guido finds he's emotionally devastated by Monet's death. Sneaking up on Tyr, Guido betrays the team, murders the boy, and becomes king of hell, per the prophecy. He uses his new power to resurrect Monet and banish her back to New York. She finds the X-Factor headquarters destroyed and ends up wandering to Las Vegas, where she crosses paths with Darwin. The two have been through a lot and end up comforting each other with a one-night stand initiated by Monet. This is the last Monet story in X-Factor, which ends with the following issue, 262. Two months later, Monet turns up in Brian Wood's new run on the adjectiveless X-Men title, featuring an all-female team led by Storm. Monet decides to spend some time at the Xavier Mansion to get her head on straight, wanting a break from superheroics. But she winds up thrown into the mix when the team battles the Sisterhood of Mutants. She proves capable of battling the goddess Amora the Enchantress, breaking the Asgardians' bones, and ends up sticking around on that team for a while. Then comes the Inhumans vs. X-Men era, which I prefer to skip on this podcast, as you know, but unfortunately it's kind of an important era for Monet. The gist is that Madrox dies from M-Pox, a disease brought on by the release of the Inhuman Terrigen Miss, which motivates Monet to join Magneto's new, more brutal team of X-Men in a new volume of Uncanny X-Men written by Cullen Bunn. Madrox gets better eventually. Again, don't worry about it. Again. Also on the new X-Men team is Sabretooth, who had his morality inverted during the company-wide event Axis. Do not worry about that, but basically he's an anti-hero now due to mind control. Monet refuses to believe Sabretooth's change is genuine, and is so contemptuous of him that their teammates wonder if maybe she's flirting. When the Morlocks specifically request her presence, she travels to the tunnels with Sabretooth, and it turns out M-Plate has returned and is feeding on the Morlocks. Marius tells Monet the mutant deaths brought on by M-Pox have deprived him of any source of food, and he begs her for help. Monet offers to let him feed on her again if he will leave the Morlocks alone, but it's all a ruse so she can attack him and try to banish him back to his alternate dimension. Marius manages to merge with her, like he did with the twins, remember that? There's a whole thing where they can merge. Monet's powerful enough to remain in control of herself and her body despite the merger, with Marius existing only as a presence in her head, but she's now suffering from his marrow vampirism. She tries to hide it, but Sabretooth figures out what's happening and offers to be her source of food. To help Magneto, Monet becomes the new White Queen of the Hellfire Club. When Psylocke fails to get useful information out of a prisoner, Monet uses a much more violent application of telepathy to uncover that he's working for Exodus, one of Magneto's former acolytes. 
Magneto's team of X-Men disbands not long after this, as Inhumans vs. X-Men begins fully ramping up as an event. Losing control of her vampiric hunger as Marius' influence grows in the back of her mind, Monet begins feeding on inhuman bone marrow. Sabretooth tracks her down, and it's revealed that because she's been feeding on him consistently, she's developed a healing factor in claws like Sabretooth's, much as Marius slowly became more and more like Penance. Sabretooth rescues Monet's victim, but then decides to let Monet feed on him after all, worried what will happen if the X-Men find out about what Monet has become. After IVX, Sabretooth joins a new team, Weapon X-Force, in the book Weapon X by Greg Pak. In Christina Strain's new volume of Generation X, meanwhile, without Sabretooth to hold her back and give her a reliable food source, Monet succumbs to her hunger and loses control of Marius, becoming an M-plate entity as Marius and the twins once did. Driven mad, Monet begins hunting mutants and draining them, eventually attacking students at the school. Monet's old classmate Jubilee, now leading a new Generation X squad as a teacher, reveals Monet's vampiric status to the rest of the X-Men. After Monet attacks the school again, dragging the mansion to M-Plate's alternate dimension, the new Gen X and her old teammates Husk and Chamber team up with Jubilee to stop her. She ends up purging Marius and all her new powers from her body after she absorbs the powers of new Gen X student Hindsight, which causes psychic feedback that snaps her out of it. Though she checks out medically as physically fine, she's traumatized by the experience of being Marius' slave again, especially because this time she was forced to do the vampiric violence with her own hands. Monet leaves the X-Men for a bit to get her head on straight, but she's immediately captured and brainwashed by the supervillain Mentallo at the behest of Reverend William Stryker. Do not worry about it. Sabretooth and Lady Deathstrike manage to free Monet with nanomachines, and she's absolutely furious that she was taken over again. Monet tries to vent her rage on Mentallo, but is interrupted by Deadpool, hired by Stryker, who she beats the absolute shit out of. Sabretooth tries to talk to Monet because he still has feelings for her, but the team is kidnapped by Stryker and forced to fight in a gladiatorial arena. They kill Stryker and escape, but it turns out Stryker has a deal with Satan that will bring him back from the dead. So they go to, God, they go to the demon mutant Azazel, Nightcrawler's father from the Draco. He helps the team get to hell, but Monet stays behind to keep an eye on Azazel. She feels bereft when the team returns without Sabretooth, who has stayed behind in hell to kill Stryker for good and give his son Graydon Creed a second chance at life. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Monet is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Monet is part of the X-Men strike team that attacks the Mother Mold and memorably tells Marvel Girl to try harder. We discover that in the time jump before House of X, Monet has learned to take on the penance form intentionally as a power-up through means unexplained. She has also begun using the codename Penance, which she reiterates after she dies alongside the rest of the team on the Motherworld mission and is resurrected by the power of the circuit called the Five. Monet chills out in the background of the Krakoa era for a while, popping up for a number of memorable and fun scenes, but not starring in the roster of any given book. In the 2020 miniseries Empire X-Men, tying into the company-wide Empire event, scenes written by Teeny Howard depict Monet and Warren Worthington III, aka original X-Man Angel, as the new leaders of the revitalized X-Corporation. The new X-Corp is managing the legitimate sale of Krakoan pharmaceuticals, among other business concerns. In May 2021, Monet and Warren debuted as the co-leads of the new book X-Corp by Teeny Howard and Alberta Fouché, which digs deeper into their corporate adventures and depicts Monet's struggle with her new penance form, a transformation apparently triggered by the explosive temper that has been a major character flaw for Monet since Everett's death back in late-stage Gen X, much like Warren's Archangel form, also triggered by anger, which he has spent years learning to control. And now, as a final point, I must address the little penances. In the first issue of 2019's New Mutants Volume 4 by Jonathan Hickman, Monet appears in a cameo in the Academos habitat, shouting after two little girls who look like penance, complete with leather uniforms. 
These are presumably Nicole and Claudette, but this non-speaking cameo has not been explained. After concluding this episode's interview, realizing I had forgotten to ask Teeny Howard about the little penances, I texted her to follow up. She said, and I quote, I bet someone, parentheses, Jubilee, dared two little kid shapeshifters to do it as a prank. I'm going to paraphrase and say, at least for now, don't worry about it. X-Men, X-Men. Welcome to a Cerebro mini episode, a mini episode of the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I am here right now with my friend Kendra James, managing editor of Star Trek.com, author of the upcoming book Admissions, a memoir of her experience as one of the only black girls at the very elite Taft boarding school. I have known Kendra for a very long time. We went to college together. She was in that freshman dorm with me and Patrick Willems and Tim Platt. So this is more of the ever-expanding Connor Goldsmith cinematic universe that you're getting to know on this podcast. Kendra told us many, many stories about her life in high school, and I can't wait to read them all in convenient book form. That will be published by Grand Central Publishing next year, I think. Yes? Next year. Wow. 2022. I was like, that can't possibly be right. And then I remembered we lost a year. Lost a whole year. It doesn't count. Yeah. (laughs) Am I allowed to tell your listeners that you are one of the people like that I first met? I remember we met at freshman orientation. Yeah. And we were the most annoying people in the room. Absolutely. Screaming about Emma Frost, which I feel like is on brand for you. (laughs) Extremely. Tim related something similar in the episode that we did. He was like, you were the first person I ever met who like had opinions about Madeline Pryor, which I recognize <laughs> is like an unusual thing. Probably to have. the so, truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I invited Kendra on because, first of all, I haven't spoken to her in a while, which is weird. But also because Monet is such a popular character, multiple people asked me, ooh, can I do a Monet episode? And so I was like, I don't want to say no. Kendra is going to be joining me for a full-length episode on Sync later this summer, now that he is joining the X-Men team, which was news to her since last time she checked he was dead. But I'm catching her up, and uh, she will be caught up in time for us to talk about it. There's only a few issues, honestly, for you to catch up on, so you're you're, going to be just fine. He's been dead since I was like 11. That's the thing. He's been dead for like 20 years, but Jonathan Hickman loves Gen X. Yeah. Monet is getting a push. Sync of all characters is getting a push. We love to see it. Love to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. And so because I have a creator on for this episode on Monet, but Monet is such a popular character with fans. I also wanted to get a couple little fan perspective moments so that we had sort of a broad swath of thought and opinion on Monet. I know that you love this character and I would just love to chat with you about it because you always have fun and interesting things to say. (laughs) Well, I think honestly for me, Monet, it was like very superficial to start. Here's what it was. She was a black girl at a boarding school. Right. I too was a black girl at a boarding school. (laughs) Uh, You didn't get a lot of those (laughs) and especially not a black girl like with powers. Mm -hmm. So like that also just appealed to me. And she was one of the more powerful people in her little cohort, especially like within Gen X. In X-Men comics, period, but especially in Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, for me, it was like literally just the boarding school thing. Because when I went off to boarding school, I was like telling everyone, well, I'm going to either Hogwarts or to Professor Xavier's school. And like those were my two boarding school references. 
Right. And then also, it was interesting because she is from Bosnia. And I remember, but also like her mother is Algerian, I believe. So we go into this in this episode because it's very confusing. (laughs) She is of Algerian descent, but also general black Francophone descent. Grew up in Monaco, where her father is an ambassador, but was born in Bosnia when her parents were on a skiing holiday. Right. And it's interesting because it is confusing. And I feel like it was confusing for some of the artists in the book that I was the books that I was Uh reading. Because um, her skin tone varied widely. Uh And and so I remember like first there was the search of, okay, I think she's at least brown. She's out of boarding school. Can I call her black? That was like a question that Mm -hmm. I actually had to ask myself. And uh, there weren't wikis. So there was like Right, no, we just had to figure this out as we went. There was just a lot of like me pouring through like the giant Marvel encyclopedias that would come out, um, and like trying to find something like firm. But what that also actually helped me do was understand the diaspora. Mm -hmm. The African diaspora, essentially, uh, is what I'm talking about. Right. And that black people come from, you know, many different places around the world and the culture is not all the same. And so that actually was interesting for me because I was doing a lot of X-Men role-playing at the time. And so in order to flesh her character out, I was actually learning a lot of stuff about Black people in various different places around the world that I just had never had to think of before. And that was the other thing that really intrigued me about her because I had to learn about Algeria. She was one of the people who like made me first, like I knew Muslim people. I have like Muslim people in my family. I was going to say you have Muslim family members. Yeah. But I actually had to read about the religion because that is not, I am not Muslim. Right. And so like, it was just very eye-opening to me in that way. So those were kind of like the first things that really attached me to the character. It wasn't really the writing. It wasn't the art. It was just that whole backstory. One of the things that's interesting about that character generally is her foreignness, right? Like she's not American in the way that the other kids mostly are. I mean, like Chambers British, but for the most part, the Gen X kids are a pretty American set. And she comes from this sort of rarefied European background. It's also interesting to have the sort of Cordelia Chase or Veronica Lodge archetype character be the black girl. I mean, that's not something you see that often. She's the mean rich girl who everybody is jealous of. All of the other girls are like, oh, I wish I was as beautiful as Monet. I wish I was as wealthy as Monet. I wish all the boys looked at me the way they look at Monet. I remember thinking that that was interesting as a kid because you would expect in a comic book for everybody to have a crush on Paige. Mm Mm-hmm. Jono has a crush on Paige, but for the most part, everyone has a crush on Monet, especially because Monet is not interested, which, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for obvious reasons, once she turns out to be two little girls in a trench coat, but even after the real Monet is retconned in as a character that exists, she's still, you know, she eventually deigns to date Everett because she's like, you know what? I like this kid. He's cute. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. But then he dies immediately. Well, we don't get happiness. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that some of the stuff that you just pointed out, I, I don't know if the word is that I was projecting onto that or I wanted to be that because, again, like I was at this boarding school and whereas Monet was sort of this like rich, aloof character who was like got away with being like kind of cool and mean to everyone, that doesn't work. Um, at a regular <laughs> boarding school. And I think 
Right. In real life. Yeah. Especially not when you're black. Be- just because of all of the dynamics that are playing in there, it's really, really hard to be a popular black girl at a boarding school. Um, I-, I don't know how to express how difficult that is. You're writing a whole book about it, actually. So Yes. Actually, no, I am. You're right. And that's why I've run out of words. My <laughs> husband says this all the time. He's like, you don't know how to express this. I'm like, well, yes, it's in the 300 pages that will be available to be read soon. Oh, yeah, on shelves in stores. But right now on- I'm tapped. <laughs> yes, I'm out. But yeah, no, it's it's really hard to be that. And so I think that she was almost aspirational is not the right word because you. I wasn't looking to be like mean or rude to people. But at least it like gave me it gave me something to hope for almost or at least to see that mm-hmm. happiness was possible for someone also and not to mention the dating like the fact that she could find a black boy to date at a boarding school who she liked and like wasn't forcing herself because you have like three options in your year there's like three other boys right. and that's like god forbid you're not straight Right. Yeah. Well, that seems like its own problem in a boarding school environment. Yeah. Yes. Uh, And so, like, yeah, it was a little aspirational almost because it just gave me something to, like, look for. And then also, like, I guess I also mentioned that I used to do a lot of RPing. And so when I was RPing, I pretty much only played black characters. Mm -hmm. I should say black or, like, Latinx characters. They were all people of color is what I'm saying. Right. I feel like you're the first person who ever admitted to me in real life that they did role playing at all. Oh, it's all in my book. Like, it's so much part of my like <laughs> X-Men role play is so much part of my high school experience because that was like I had my friends at school. But then because I didn't have that many friends at school, all of my other friends were in my X-Men RP games online. Right. Yeah. Online. Yeah. And so I would find these characters kind of like Monet. Monet is not the most obscure who I would choose, but... No, but were you, like, playing Serenity and, yeah, like... Pre- you yes, know. like, pretty much. Like, I was playing... Um, I played Sink, who we'll talk about on a later episode. That was my first ever RP character. And then I would play Monet. I played Cecilia Reyes. And so, yeah, I was, like, always looking for these black and brown girls to bring to life. And one of the other interesting things about Monet was that because artists could never decide on, like, what she actually looked like, I got to, like pick a bunch of different you would pick actors to play the characters that you were portraying it left the doors a little bit wider um for me to engage with these fictional worlds and that was fun for me i mean i think it's because her history is so inconsistent writing wise (laughs) yes nowadays if you are writing one of these characters you can look up so much about the characters online but i think that if you are hired sort of like midstream yeah to write a character, I mean, my understanding, and this might be apocryphal, but I believe that when X-Factor Investigations started, Peter David and his collaborators were under the impression she was South Asian. That would explain a lot. Right? Yeah. Because she looks I could South Asian in those early X-Factor Investigations stories. And then someone wrote in to the letters column. There's like a very infamous letters page where... The letter writer is like, I'm under the impression that Monet is African-American or something, and mm-hmm. she seems really light in this comic book. And Peter <laughs> David's like, we've been doing a lot of research, and we're not sure if she's African anything, but, you know, we're probably going to darken her skin a little bit. Just to be safe. <laughs> you know she's Algerian, though. You've said this, So, like, you know... <laughs> 
that's Africa. That's literally like it, clearly in that very American way, using African to mean black, which is what he actually meant. Like, we're not sure if she's black. Yeah. But it really is because she's had like she had two fathers, one of whom was white and one of whom was black. And the white one was retconned into her grandfather. And then her mother is established to be Arab eventually, who died when mm-hmm. she was younger. So she's a woman of color for sure. But the question like, <laughs> is she supposed to be black? What's going on? Was definitely like a question mark for a long time. And as a result, I would say for most of her publication history, because so many years of it was in X Factor investigations, for a good chunk of that time, she's definitely not portrayed as black. They correct it midway through X Factor to some extent. And in the time since, I would say it's been a lot better with some obvious moments that fans have rightly called out where they're like, this isn't correct this is an ongoing problem in big two comics in particular that lots of people have talked about where characters just seem to get lighter and lighter and lighter particularly black characters yes i mean yeah but you go back to gen x and like that girl's black like there's no ambiguity to it i remember her because i read that series we have every single single issue like every single individual issue of that series because my dad collected it like throughout middle school and so i would sneak read it because i wasn't really allowed to read his comics for whatever reason but we have them all it was like her and then um fatality from green lantern were like the only two black women that i would see with any regularity (laughs) (laughs) like in the comics that my dad fatality (laughs) that's a pull i that is a pull if you ever start a kyle rayner green lantern podcast i can talk about that for ages (laughs) i'm a fatality fan i remember wasn't she the one who was like obsessed with john stewart yep yes she was yeah he would visit her in jail or she would visit him in jail. it was great I just remember her being cool. And then they made her a star sapphire eventually. Yes. <laughs> like with Carol Ferris and all that. This is not a DC podcast. I'm not that good at DC, but there was a brief shining moment for me with DC. It was literally after House of M and the Decimation. I was so mad mm-hmm. that I was like, I'm reading DC. And I got really into DC, Gotham Central, 52, Seven Soldiers, all of that stuff. Well, you're a Rucka man. I'm a Rucka guy, right? Rucka and Morrison are really my, like, in terms of modern writers, probably the two that I've followed around most. So I jumped in there and I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. And the New 52, a couple years later, just like completely. (laughs) Yes. I was like, well, never mind. I'm just not going to read comics at all for like two years. I will say, like, one of the other things that I remember, like, deeply loving about Monet was, do you remember um, on the old Marvel site, I think it was, they would have the rankings of, like, I think it was, like, one through ten of who was the most powerful. Like, yeah. So, like, Tony Stark's intelligence would be, like, at a ten and then. Right. I think it's, like, out of seven or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. From the handbooks. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so I would go through that and, like, also just even before I was like sort of playing in the sandbox of this world, I knew that that meant something. And so it always like made me very happy to see that there was like this black girl who would have like sixes and sevens in her ranking. Yeah. She was super powerful. Um, and that like really meant something. And to a me. genius. Yes. And a genius. Like she was a lot of things that really just appealed to me as a young reader. Mm-hmm. It's like, she's a genius. She's beautiful. She has all the superpowers. There's a great, um, there's a great bit from one of the recent 
runs of X-Force before the big relaunch recently, but it's like one of those X-Force runs where somebody, I think it's like Lady Deathstrike, I forget, is like, okay, this one, what powers does she have? And Domino goes, all of them. It's like she got <laughs> caught in an explosion at a superpower factory. Right. <laughs> and, um, or like in the first issue of X-Factor, X-Factor Investigations, Richard describes her as yeah. Veronica Lodge with the powers of Superman, which is accurate and what's interesting Mm -hmm. about it you know in terms of what i'm hearing from you is like there are lots of characters in the marvel universe in the dc universe who have sixes and sevens across the board who are just powerful and smart and you know all of that it is rare for a black woman to be afforded that opportunity storm is really the only character and monica rambo who at this time in the 90s had been written out but they're sort of it everybody else it's like a more street level hero or they're strong but they're not a gene you know it's like the genius aspect i mean now we have riri williams and lunella lafayette and those characters but monet was it honestly for a long time and that was what i was gonna say about like at least about storm like yes she was very powerful but then like she would have like maybe a four or five for intelligence. That's not bad in Marvel. Like that is right. No, that's great. very good generally. <laughs> yes. But like you're not going to be comparing notes with Reed Richards or Hank Pym or one of those guys. Exactly. Or Moira McTaggart, you know, like and Hank while they're like trying to fix the legacy virus. Monet would have sort of interesting ideas. Yeah. The thing that's key to, I think, Monet and Emma's relationship in Gen X is that Monet is smarter than Emma. Mm hmm. Yes. And Emma's very smart, but Monet is smarter than her and has no patience for her. And Emma's not used to that. Yes. When Rashida Renee Ward was on to talk about Storm, she was like, I've just never quite vibed with Emma because she's like a little too white for me. Like, I love her, but she's like a little too white for me. (laughs) I get that, though. Like, she is the white queen and it's funny. Right. White privilege is like her tertiary mutation. Like, it really is (laughs) like a thing. And what Monet does is sort of challenge that because Monet is richer than Emma, smarter than Emma, just as beautiful as Emma. And in fact, since we know that Emma has altered her appearance a lot with cosmetic surgery, Monet is much more naturally beautiful than Emma. There's a lot of interesting stuff there with those characters. Now, what's interesting when you think about how this was like the first black female character to really be allowed to fire on all cylinders like that. The original premise for Monet is that she was too good to be true and she was going to turn out to be fake. Like she was these two, two little girls sitting on top of each other's shoulders. Right, who had merged into a perfect being. Yeah. Monet has stood out to a lot of people as an X-Men character because once you establish, no, there is a real Monet and she does have all those powers and she is a genius and she is beautiful and all of that, the powers of it all, she doesn't have an X-Men type power set. She has much more of a DC type power set or like one of the Avengers. It's sort of Carol Danvers-ish. It's like she can do a lot of different stuff. Yeah. And the X-Men, usually you have like one thing or two things that you can do. That has made her a little awkward as a fit in the X-Men at times. But Mm -hmm. I think that in the long run, it's really valuable to look at that character and say, and this was an editorial decision. They were like, we like her and you got to change this. To look at that character and say, no, it's all right. She can be perfect. 
Mm-hmm. Because she's mean, like, and selfish. So it's not, like, she's not actually perfect. But, like, the idea that you look at this black girl and say, no, she can have all those powers and she can be a genius and this can be a real person. This doesn't have to be a trick. Yeah. I think that that is part of why the character has remained so popular and became such a breakout. Because I think that for a lot of black women in particular who are fans of the X-Men and black gay guys, based on a lot of anecdotal <laughs> experience that I've had talking to people... I think that this character was a real game changer for a lot of people. Well, and I think that's the other thing, too. Like, because you say she's not perfect because she's not nice. And no, she's not. But that's, like, the delight of it, too. She doesn't have to be nice. Yeah, because I think if you talk to, like, any sort of, like, powerful in our world Black woman, you're going to find that that power comes with the expectation that you temper yourself in a way so that you're not making the white people around you or not even just white people, but like even black men or just like men in general, you're not making yourself intimidating to them with the addition of your sort of aloof or cold behavior on top of all the power that you have. And so it's nice to have that character there who just doesn't have to do any of that and isn't punished or isn't like, it isn't punished by all of the material that is written for her for that. Right. As happens in other fandoms quite often (laughs) yeah the punishment that she gets is the penance of being penance retroactively (laughs) but it's something that because of the retcon that's in her past by the time we meet the character and monet even in x-factor investigations which frankly i find to be like a pretty sexist book a lot of the time i reread some of it this weekend and it was not as good as i remember it has not aged well in my opinion but It made sense, I'll say, because I loved it when it came out. And part of the reason was Monet was in it. And I realized now that I loved it because I was also reading like fables at the time. So I was just very into that sort of noir space. Yeah, like the noir detective comic thing. And like specifically doing something different with superheroes in comic books. So that really worked for me. And I think Monet is just really adaptable in that way because she is so powerful and has so many facets. She fits into a lot of different things. And it was quite clever, honestly, the way that David made her power set work in a more grounded noir setting. Yeah. In part by having her telepathy be something that works better if she's closer to you. Things Mm. like that. Little limitations on her power that didn't make her any weaker as a character because it was in keeping with how she'd been presented before. She doesn't use her telepathy that often because she has all these physical powers. So saying her telepathy is good, but she's not like Jean where she can be like on another continent. It's better if she's in the room with you. Things like that. Because then you could do a noir interrogation, right? Like you can do things like that. I reread the first 30 issues for this episode and I was struck by in particular the way that Siren is written I find very um yeah but anyway yeah (laughs) and like the Layla Miller of it all I find just like really distressing Mm -hmm. generally like that character distresses me yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) but in any case but Monet I mean I was not a big Gen X reader so X-Factor Investigations was really my not introduction to Monet because I had read enough of Gen X to know who she was. And when I did read Gen X, she was the character I thought was the coolest. Mm -hmm. So when I saw that she was in X Factor Investigations, that's actually one of the reasons I picked it up because I was so upset about the decimation. Again, I was not reading decimation era X-Men that much, but I did read X Factor Investigations up through the issue where Siren absorbs the baby. And I then I was done. I was like, I'm out. I don't want to read this. This is this is just too unpleasant. Yes, like I just yeah, don't yeah. No, I you know, it. like 
it's too unpleasant and cruel to these women in particular. Like this was after Siren had been tied up with the ball gag and beaten half to death. It's after all the stuff with Rain. It's after yeah. like so I was just like, you know what? This is not this is just not for me and that's fine. But rereading it, I was struck by Monet is by far the most fun member of the cast. She is easily the breakout of that cast to me at least. Like it helps that I already liked her, but in part because he ages her up. Mm-hmm. She was 18 at the end of Gen X and now she's like 25 and it's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. But she doesn't need to be there. Like that's, what's really fun about it, but she's just choosing to be there. Like she doesn't need the money. So it's not like she needs a job. Right. She's not worried about the registration in civil war because she's just like, oh, I don't have a secret identity. I'm just rich. And like, my name is Monet. That'll afford me what it affords me. Yeah. Like, she's <laughs> just like, I, I don't like, I'm not afraid of the government. I'm a diplomat's mm. daughter. Actually, you can't arrest me. So like, there's this sort of, you know, she also doesn't have pre-existing connections to the other characters in that book. Whereas most of them have no. worked together previously. It's really a sequel to David's earlier X Factor run in the early nineties. Cause you've got multiple man, strong guy, Wolfsbane, and then Richter and Wolfsbane have a long history and Siren and multiple man have a long history. So it's this very like tight knit group, except for Monet, who's just there because Peter David thought she was cool, which she is. And Gen X had been canceled. The question is sort of, why is she here? And it's never quite answered, which I like, but you get the sense that she's <laughs> bored. Right. And is right. like, I guess I'll help. And then quickly, she becomes very invested in like, oh, I want to hurt bigots. <laughs> and that is where she really starts to, because I think what you said about the niceness is really part of it. She's a black woman character who is allowed to be violent and is allowed to be angry. And I think that, to varying degrees of success, she manages to avoid the angry black woman stereotype. Depending on, yeah, depending on who's... Depending on the writer. Yeah. And there's certainly moments in X-Factor investigations where you're like, hmm. Teeny and I talked about this a little bit in our interview about X-Corp because it's about Monet as a CEO. Mm-hmm. When does this book come out? Because you're selling me on this. Uh, it's out today as you're listening to this. Oh, okay. Great. Perfect. It's about Monet and Angel and Sunspot, but he's in the background in the first issue and they're like running the Krakoan businesses that are funding everything. Sold. You're behind, so you don't know this right now, but Monet has developed the penance form as an alternate mode, like Emma's diamond form that she goes into oh, I've when read she about kind of that. Okay. So she kind of hulks yeah. out. And the tricky thing there is you don't want it to be that she's an angry black woman who transforms into an angry black woman monster. Mm-hmm. It's more that she has spent her whole life containing herself because she's so powerful, because she's a black Muslim woman in France, first of all, which like is right. a whole other kettle of fish that X-Men comics have not delved into. But we also talked a bit about how she and Siren go to Paris and she like pulls sort of a power move like I'm a diplomat's daughter. And I'm like, you know, there's subtext here that I'm sure David wasn't thinking about because when he wrote that issue, he didn't even know Monet was black, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and she hadn't been established as a Muslim yet by that point. Right. But looking back on it holistically for the character, you're like, oh, this is a black Muslim woman saying to the French police, like, back the fuck off. I'm not someone you can push around. And there is something interesting to that. Part of it is like Warren also has an alternate form that he turns into when he gets angry. So mm-hmm. they have a parallelism. 
for Monet, it's more that she has an anger problem, but it's like an explosive anger problem. It's not a chip on her shoulder. It's that she's so beset by idiots and assholes at all times that she can bottle that up for only so long and then eventually it just has to go somewhere. I mean, and that's just being a black woman at any corporate job in America. So like, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I hope I hope you like the book. No, that's actually like very exciting because I didn't, I had no idea she was going to be leading her own book and that's really cool. Yeah, it's like a co-lead her and Warren, but like, mm-hmm. I think it's good because he's never really had a chance to lead a title either. And I no. think that they're a fun... They're just a fun diet. I think that they have a lot in common and also a lot not in common. And I'm excited yeah. to see them bounce off each other. Yeah. And I like I like your point. It's interesting that you make that point about sort of the explosive anger versus like the just the angry black woman thing. Because I remember thinking to myself, like when She-Hulk was being talked about for like a TV show and people would say like, oh, we want Gina Torres to play her or like naming like other black women. And I always remember thinking to myself, like, you have to just be so careful with that. Because it that can go so many ways, depending on who's writing it, you know, having this like black woman like Hulk out and just like get angry and like, right, be rampaging around the place. It's something that like, I want to see, but only if it's written in a very sort of specific, well done way. It's just like something that I worry about. And I'm glad to see that Monet has not had to succumb to that. How far did you follow her? Did you go all the way through X Factor? Did you keep reading after that? I stopped reading after a certain point. I have the first, I have five trade paperbacks of that one. And then I I left Marvel after a while just because like, like we were talking about. You're more of a DC girl. The X-Men got really confusing to follow. And I was like such a huge X-Men person, like through middle school, through high school. And then I think just as the responsibilities of life increased. It was just easier yeah. to follow other got books. got too hard. To f- yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I have to pay rent. <laughs> and when it's easier to follow Batman yes. than the X-Men, yes. it oh, means 100%. that X-Men has become really hard to follow. Yeah. And then also, like, I was all, I for a while was, like, really trying to give money towards other IP as well, like, to different creators and to different companies other than the big two. Right. But what I will say is that what I like about hearing Monet coming back to co-lead her own book is that one hopes that one day this character would show up in an X-Men movie because black women in the X-Men movies uh, up to this point have not had the best run, I would argue. No, they have not. They certainly have not. No, it would be cool to see her on screen. I mean, and she's a character with a lot of history. And if they ever go back to sort of that basic Xavier boarding school plot, she's a good character to have in there. And I think necessary now. I hate when they try to just like sort of invent new characters, new black characters specifically. For like movies, like you're not a Spike from Evolution fan. Oh God, yeah, we didn't need that. That, that character was so unnecessary. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, no, no. I, I like to see the characters that exist already become more developed and be given more backstory and be given a second chance to now be written well in an era where maybe, you know... People are thinking about it more? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've said this on the podcast about the idea of, like, race-bending characters in the MCU my perspective on it as just like a white person so you know grain of salt but like i think it is more valuable in terms of the health of diversity in comics 
to elevate a character like Monet than it is to cast a black woman as Rogue. Because Rogue is going to stay white in the comic book. Yes. There are very few times when it's going to happen, like with Samuel L. Jackson and Nick Fury. That is like, right. that is a fluke. Or like they've introduced <laughs> a new Valkyrie now in the comics because everyone likes right. the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie. And like you can do that, but they're not going to introduce a new rogue who's black. Like that's not going to yeah. happen. Or like, you know, we talked about this in the Dazzler episode with Evan Narcisse because Dazzler was originally supposed to be black back in the 70s. Oh, I didn't know that. Donna yeah. Summer, I assume. Grace Jones. Oh, okay. They changed that before she debuted. So it was like, this might be a good opportunity to correct that. On the other hand, then you have the brand confusion of the character in the comics being white. And if the character becomes popular in the MCU, then it's a white character in the comics who gets the benefits of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I just remember, like, yeah, in high school, there was a, a website I used to visit called, like, blacksuperheroes.com. I remember that website. Yeah, just a site filled with, with black characters who existed, but who until really even then were just being underutilized. Um, and, like, go back and, and grab some of those and give those guys some life because they're there and they exist and yeah. they're, they're ready to be used. <laughs> oh, that site now leads to something bad. Oh, my God. Who does it? <laughs> Okay, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there, guys. I remember that website and Gay League. I remember Gay League. As in the Justice League, which was like all the LGBT characters. (laughs) Those were like the two sort of like minority superhero websites. Yep. I remember those being big for like fandom reference at the time. It was like you would go to (laughs) uncannyxmen.net and if you wanted like more info on a minority superhero, there were like those two websites that were very well maintained. Oh, they were. But they were on like GeoCities or whatever. So I'm not surprised to hear that it now redirects to something. To a bad. Russian porn site. But Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the internet, baby. We're talking about the before times. <laughs> web 1.0. Yeah. We still called it the web, actually. That tells you how old we are now. So old. GeoCities. You fell off Marvel for a while. Have you come back at all? Have you been like dipping your toes in at all? Because I can help you catch up on the X-Men at least. I'm like excited to have you help me catch up because I will admit so. I Because I've been writing a book for the past year. My reading yeah, you've has been busy. Just been, I just have not <laughs> been reading. And I especially actually have not been reading. I specifically stayed away from X-Men even when certain things caught my eye because I was not allowing myself to read anything having to do with about schools like I just didn't want that stuff um um sinking in so the last comics I bought actually were two Superman comic books because I was like okay I'm gonna like start slow and that new Superman and Lois show had started so I was just like let me do this but I am I'm excited to get back into Marvel because you're a Tyler Hecklin head so of course you wanted to yes (laughs) of course you wanted to uh, catch up in time for that show But yeah, no, I'm excited to be diving back in now that I have time and where I can like appreciate, I can appreciate stuff in different forms because I also have not read any of like the new YA stuff that's come out about any of my favorite characters. I haven't Mm -hmm. been reading like the graphic novels separate just from like the issues. So yeah, I'm excited to get back into it, especially with Spider-Man. I miss Spider-Man and every Spider-Man still I see looks great. (laughs) I cannot help you with Spider-Man. That is like way far outside my wheelhouse, but I love that for you. (laughs) I can certainly help you with the X-Men and I will. 
The really nice thing about this era is House of X and Powers of Ten was kind of a soft reboot. I say that every week and it's become like a meme <laughs> now with like my listeners. They're like, the soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman. It is kind of like you don't have to have read anything before it necessarily. It's like everything is enriched by you having read the Claremont material or the Morrison material in particular, but you don't need it necessarily. And after House of X Powers of Ten, which is like this miniseries event of like 12 issues. Okay. Then there's just a checklist in the back and it's like, here's every issue that we're doing. Okay. So is that the same checklist? Because I made a list for myself based off a lot of the stuff that I was seeing on that Hellfire invitation. And I was like, I want to know what's going on here. I'm going yeah. to read all of this stuff regardless. <laughs> I'm going to send you like a primer and it'll be good. I think like Marvel Unlimited now actually is breaking it down into like lists that make it easy to catch up on this era. I think it's great. It's like my favorite X-Men since Morrison for sure. And I think line wide, it's the best it's been like since we were toddlers. I believe you just because it got really convoluted if you weren't reading every single issue of every single thing. And it was hard to figure out where I was supposed to even jump back in. Like what what would make Right. And so sense. that's why it's nice that here it's like jump back in here. Hi, we're here for right. you. It's a lot like Morrison in that way where like new X-Men was like, hi, haven't read the X-Men since 1994. Jump in. Like it's fine. And I still like, oh, God, that run was so good. Ugh. God, that run is good. It's a good, that's a good ass run. Didn't love the art, but I loved that run. <laughs> I have grown to really love the Quietly art, but if you were, you know, 13, 14, like we were, it was jarring <laughs> yeah. because it wasn't what we were expecting yes. from a superhero book. And I think that's why it was successful because <laughs> yeah. it caught a tone that was very different. It was a little gross out. Yeah, it's gross, like on purpose, kind of. Yeah. My favorite new X-Men issues visually, of course, are the ones Phil Jimenez draws that are absolutely stunning. But yes. like that's just my aesthetic <laughs> more. But Quitely is a really brilliant storyteller. And I think that did open my mind a little bit because I was so used to like John Byrne, Paul Smith, Dave Cockrum, mm-hmm. Mark Silvestri, these sort of like very glamorous. Paul Smith a little less so, but everybody's still really hot, you know? <laughs> And like, you know, it's just, it was just very different. Yeah. Monet has had kind of a wild ride since you stopped reading. She was the white queen of the Hellfire Club for a second. Uh, Sabretooth got mind controlled into being good. So she dated Sabretooth kind of for a minute. I love that for her. I did not. But I, you know, well, I just, I, I, Sabretooth grosses me out, but I, He was good at the time. He was, it was complicated. It was a bad storyline, but that storyline that spun out of it was like, I don't know, it was fine. I don't have strong (laughs) opinions. I feel like the Monet and Sabretooth people are going to be like emailing me like, how dare you not? And I'm just like, because he's a bad guy and I don't want that for her. But (laughs) um, the thing that's interesting is it builds, right? It's like people read the X Factor Investigations run And she was the fun character. So they just started throwing her into things. And then she was like on the X-Men team. She's just more than any of the other Gen X kids has survived the intervening 25 years. What helps now is that Jonathan Hickman, when he was asked, like, who are your top five mutants? Like your favorite characters? Monet was one of them. Yeah. So you started to see as this era began her getting a push. And now... Teeny, who also counts Monet among her favorite characters, gets to do this Monet and Angel book. And I'm I'm just really excited about it. Yeah, I mean I I think as you rightly pointed out, like her her sort of more DC set of powers, you don't want too many of those, but having one person around yeah. 
that must be fun to work with. And it gives you a lot more options than just like the girl who turns into a wolf. Right. And the girl who screams. So, (laughs) yeah, I think it's why Rogue became such a major character in the 90s, because she has similarly like that flying brick DC power set because she stole it from Carol. Right. And, (laughs) you know, that made her in terms of utility, a very useful character in the same way that Storm is a very useful character because Storm is a very clever, like it's cheating, right? Because it's yes. like, she's a mutant. She has one power, but it's weather. So it's like 20 powers. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, you know. Yeah. And you have to be a little like, I'm, I mean, I remember that's kind of when X-Men is good. That's when it's really, really good when they're clever like that. Because I mean, you remember X2, when Magneto pulls the iron out of the dude's blood, that seems like something that should just be totally, he should not be able to do that, but it is such a clever loophole. No, and Magneto is constantly doing shit like that. (laughs) Magneto and Polaris sometimes, does the plot need me to do something insane? We'll just call it magnetism. Like no one reading this (laughs) understands how magnetism actually works, so it's fine. That's when X-Men's good, when the writers are doing that. It's like the Flash, right? Like to go to another DC comparison. Like the Flash is just, he's so fast, he can do five billion things. And whatever the plot demands, he can do it. (laughs) And if it would be inconvenient for him to be able to do something for the plot, we'll just say for whatever reason he can't do it right now. The Speed Force said so. Yeah, the Speed Force wouldn't let him or whatever. And that's why like sometimes Storm has to get trapped in a box and go like, my claustrophobia. (laughs) But I agree that the characters with broad spectrum power potential it's useful to have at least one of those people on a team because when you have a team that's just the original new mutants for example where it's like yeah one of them can turn into a wolf one of them can make illusions of things you're scared of one of them can shoot in one direction and not turn one of them is strong but not invulnerable and one of them can possess people it's like okay but that book didn't really work until claremont added Ilyana, who could do a lot of other stuff right Because otherwise you had to come up with really, really situational power applications. Like, rain can turn into a dog. Do we need a dog? What can we do? What can the plot be that involves a dog, some illusions, and flying really fast in one direction without banking? You know? like So once Ilyana was like, I can teleport and I have a magic sword and I can do little bits of magic here and there. You're like, okay... That allows for a little more variety. And then Danny, over the course of that book, her power set expanded dramatically because, first of all, like Chris Claremont loves to do that with a female character, but also just it became like, oh, I can make them solid now. Here's my solid illusion. That's a lot more useful. You know, things like that. (laughs) I can make an illusory spear that I can actually stab people with. It's like great upgrade. That was a good use of the danger room, Danny. Good Good choice. Yeah. God, that was with the High Evolutionary. She got like supercharged. Anytime the High Evolutionary shows up. That is that is further. The plot lore. is about to get weird. That's like further lore than I than I know. Like, <laughs> I never really dealt I'll be honest, like I never really dealt with the uh what I call like the fantasy side of X-Men. I think I was mm-hmm. always more on the more like grounded, sort of like yeah. school, say topple a government like do a spy game x-men yeah like the the political stuff as opposed to like i loved excalibur which is very not that 
yeah. one of the things that's really beautiful about the X-Men as a franchise is that there's room for all of that. And if you look at the line right now, it's like Excalibur is a magic book. X-Factor oh. is a detective book. Yeah, it's complicated. It's ending for now, but it's transitioning into a Trial of Magneto event miniseries. As you do. With the same writer. And I'm hoping it'll come back after that event, but we don't know yet what's mm. going on with it. Anyway, but it's been a detective book in the tradition of like X-Factor Investigations. You have this book, X-Court, which is like Billions or Succession or like something like that, but with X-Men, I'm which is I'm so going to read this. You've done such a good job. <laughs> it's for you. It's for you. I like, I knew you would like it. That's why I wanted to tell you about it. It's like very Kendra. You can do all kinds of different settings and they all feel of a piece because it's the X-Men and the X-Men has always provided that space, but it hasn't always provided it equally to different kinds of characters right i think it's really cool that monet is the character of those girls who got to be the big deal character yeah that almost never happens like first of all the mean girl it just almost never happens even if she grows as a person like you can have the mean girl bully character slowly become nicer that's a trope that we're all sort of accustomed to but she never gets to be the hero the star in quite that way it's particularly wild when, again, it's like Jubilee, who was the pre-existing teen prominent character, and Husk, who felt tailor-made to be that breakout character. The girl next door. <laughs> she's the girl next door. She's a white blonde. She's an existing popular X-Men character's younger sister. She has a power that is actually pretty broad spectrum in its application because she can do lots of different things. She has the tortured romance with the bad boy. Like <laughs> it felt as though those characters were the ones really set up to fly. And I mean, they were because again, Monet was supposed to be revealed as not a real person midway through the <laughs> book. There's something very gratifying about the fact that like this mean black girl character who wasn't even supposed to be real and who was too good to be true has now become of that generation this is male and female characters from yeah. Gen X. Far and away, the most prominent, the most beloved, the most popular with fans and with writers. I think that that's really cool. I No, I completely agree. Is, is Jubilee still a vampire? No. Okay, because that's... I assumed that Jubilee was sort of still breakout because I knew she had her own book where she was a vampire, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know that Monet had really continued past sort of like incidental appearances outside of X Factor. So I really actually did assume that Jubilee was sort of that breakout. <laughs> and so it's just like kind of interesting. Jubilee got kind of screwed because she lost her powers in the decimation. Gotcha. And Monet and Paige didn't. So Paige joined the X-Men for the Chuck Austin run that is infamous. <laughs> that is sort of what killed her momentum as a character, frankly. And then Monet joined X-Factor. Jubilee was decimated. It was just kind of screwed. I think they felt like she was a dated character because she was from like 1989. Hadn't really been allowed to age because of the way comics work. But she's like this mall rat. Right. It's very Bart Simpson, right? Where it's like this is yeah, no yeah, longer yeah. what the youth are like. So she was just like off page for a while. And then they brought her back with the vampire thing, which I thought was hilarious because, first of all, it's a clever way to, like, get her back in the mix. But also, if you're never going to let Jubilee age beyond about 17, making her well. a vampire <laughs> is a really funny thing to do. I wish they had let her stay a vampire but had given her back the fireworks and she had become a sparkle vampire as, like, a Twilight joke. Right. I think that would have been really <laughs> funny. 
Also, like the idea of a vampire with firework powers is funny because you don't want to catch fire if you're a vampire. No. So she'd have to be really careful. And Jubilee's like not that careful of characters. So that would be fun. No, she's back to normal non-vampire, has her powers back and adopted a baby. So she's like... I love that for her. Great. She loves it, but she has been not... At, she's on Excalibur right now and is like a fun character in that supporting cast. But she's definitely a supporting character as opposed to like a main, main character. And Monet is headline in a book. So, you know. I think Jubilee will have her day again. I, I Oh, I'm I sure think, she will. Yeah. I am sure she will. <laughs> no, absolutely. But there was something, I don't know, as like someone who was myself a bit of like a mean girl who needed to learn to be nice and <laughs> who has always identified with those characters. <laughs> There was something very gratifying to me about Monet getting to be like an X-Man and getting to be this important character, you know, and whenever a Gen X person shows up, it's her because Chamber got decimated, too. And like oh. Chamber and Jubilee were sort of the really, you know. Wow. OK, so Scarlet Witch killed my whole childhood. That's fine. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Wanda just really took no prisoners yeah. on that one. <laughs> No, but I, I think you're totally right. I think it's the it's a little bit of the identifying. And then, like I said, the fact that she is she's not ultimately punished for being who she is right. and continues to be popular and just headline books apparently everywhere. She's a great character. And I I'm like thankful that I had that to latch on to when I was reading. I'm glad you had that, too, because like. <laughs> You were a mean girl when I met you, but you were smart and fun. So oh, it was I was. fine. We were mean <laughs> together. You were actually, one time, one time, Kendra ditched me at a party. Oh, my God. And just walked Wait, away which... into the night. Which time? Is that the question you're asking? <laughs> yeah, I was literally... this, is, this is deep lore. This is deep lore that you don't need to know about. Don't worry about it, but it, it is kind of a funny story, but it's fine. Yeah. Um, no, this is the t this is the time. No, it was because I was talking to your ex, and oh. you were just, and, and and you did not, and he was trying to, t and you just like disappeared. And then I ghosted. And I was like, where? Yeah, completely. And I was texting like, where are you? Gone <laughs> into the night. Which like I understand. I understood it in retrospect, but I was like, you could text me back. <laughs> in retrospect, I'm happy I was able to serve as a distraction for your like. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> vanishing out the back. <laughs> We went to Oberlin. It was a very small town. You could not escape your exes because there was only one no. bar and there would no. only be and one party on any given night. It was rough. One time I rounded the corner at the one bar and I was with our friend Elena, who Kendra knows, and yeah. my ex and her ex were sitting at a table together at the bar having a conversation. And we were like, <laughs> we need to leave right now. This is the worst thing that I've ever that seen in my life. Constantly <laughs> happened. Constant, constantly I mean, endless I slept, I slept with two best friends like it, it just like, you yes. did god that was iconic frankly you <laughs> caused trouble <laughs> god remember that guy who then turned out like he became like a startup billionaire yes yes i do god he was yeah on, okay yes. we don't have to go uh, into it anyway anyway uh, um anyway <laughs> Sorry. I've missed you. Can you tell? Like we have not caught up in so long. I know, now we we're just talking shit. All. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, it's a mess. It's a mess. Well, I think that's a good moment for me to return to my interview already in progress with expert writer Teeny Howard. 
but I want to thank you, first of all, for coming to chat about Monet with me. I knew that like she was important to you growing up. And I was like, I, I, I would feel weird like not having Kendra on to talk about Monet at all. No, thank you. And I, I'm so glad to be here. And then I'm going to come back. I promise. Sink. I'm going to have like. Yeah, we're going to do I it. I will have my shit together. There are only like four issues for you to read. Yep. Since Gen X. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited that he's coming back. That's so great. It's been so long. He's getting a huge push. It's wild. I really, I love it. It goes to show that it just takes one writer who like really appreciates a character to change their fortunes enormously. No one has to stay dead. It's the comics. No, I mean, that's the premise of this era now. It's like X-Men don't stay dead. So we're going to make that part of the story because (laughs) at this point, like lean into it, right? Thank you again for joining me. Why don't you tell the listeners really quickly where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you want to plug. I mean, I know that the book is not out until next year, but, you know, anything else you want to advertise. Yeah, I will next year uh, have a book out called Admissions. It's a memoir about my time at boarding school. Um, Watch for... Wait, what do we call them? Watch for a buy link, pre-buy link, pre-order link. I don't know this stuff. Yet. Pre-orders. Pre-orders. Watch um, for a pre-order link, which will go up soon in the next few months. It will go up soon. I, I've seen the cover already. I'm excited for everyone to see it and all of that stuff. When it does come out, you'll be able to find it on my Twitter or my Instagram, which is Kendra James underscore at the end. It's just Kendra James underscore. And I'm that on both Instagram and Twitter. And those were pretty much the only places on social where I'm super active. So please find me there. Follow her on Instagram. She has a cute dog. Yeah. Yes. Very cute dog <laughs> who stayed very quiet during this interview. I'm very impressed. I didn't even know she was in the room. Hi, Amy. Oh, no. She's not in the room, but like she's just so loud. You oh, oh, okay. Like, throughout this whole part. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and then also you can listen to the podcast that I executive produce at my day job called uh, Star Trek The Pod Directive. I executive produce it and it's hosted by Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins. And sometimes you can hear me on it. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should get time. Paul F. Tompkins to come on my podcast. Okay. I, I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not going to hold you to that, but I bet he'd have a lot to say about the X-Men. <laughs> In any case, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm excited to have you back for like a big rollicking full length giant size episode on sync in the next couple Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you. I'm coming to LA soon. So we will yes. catch Oh my gosh, we can go outside again. It's so great. Have mimosas. <laughs> it's going to be so good. I'm so excited. Yes. All right. Thank yes. you, Kendra. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. I hope you've been enjoying this long and winding road, much like Monet's publication history. But now I am back with the one and only Teeny Howard, writer of X Corp, the book in which Monet is the co-lead. Out now. Go buy it. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We are going to segue now into your questions. So many of you wrote in this week. I got more questions about Monet than about any other character we have done thus far on the show. So I've had to curate, and I'm sorry we can't get to everybody, but I'm going to do my best. So Keith C. Amaral writes, Hi, Connor and Teeny. I know I speak for the masses when I say your podcast helped me through my own unique personal hellscape of 2020 and beyond. You provide important public service, and that isn't hyperbole. I had to throw in a question about one of my most favorite and most incomprehensible mutants, Monet. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. 
One of my favorite beats from Ten of Swords was Monet plotting on Saturnine's job. And in general, I really dig her dynamic with Emma. The two have ambition in common, but Emma has mellowed with age, wisdom, and various dead students. It's the topic of Monet's ambition that brings me to my question. While I never want the character to break bad, I do like the idea of someone working within the current Krakoan status quo, but with their own unique goals in mind. With X-Corp focusing on the concept of mutant business, I'd love to see Monet's ambition explored, maybe in ways that bring her in direct conflict with the greater good. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think X-Corp will present opportunities to see a more ruthless side to Monet, and beyond that, if you like that aspect of the character. Thanks, Keith. Well, I certainly do enjoy that about her. I like when she goes a little too far for the right reasons. I also loved that line from Ten of Swords when they're like, why are you coming to other worlds? Do you know anything about Saturday? She's like, sounds like a job I might want. Yeah, being in charge of everything, I'd be good at that. Yeah, that's that line. Jonathan and I both really, really love Monet. Yeah. We both really, really love her. That's like one of the first characters like I think I think the first like characters we figured out we both really really loved was like Monet and Apocalypse <laughs> and probably Sunspot too I feel like you're both very I keep forgetting to mention I like that he's called Beto in X Corp 1 instead of Birdo yes, that feels like that a long was... overdue correction yeah that is a it's a, a nod to our editor Lorna Morrow she as a person of Latina descent was like this is how this should be it always rings weird to me as as Berto like yeah uh, he would he would be Beto I've had Brazilian listeners write in about that like yeah it's just, yeah and it's just very much I, I liked that detail yeah. but yeah so what do you think about Monet's ambition and how it may serve or conflict with Krakoan goals I think uh, ambition is a virtue very much um, I think that it's what we ambition I think is a really really good thing um, it's the the what we're willing to do or not do and when the name of our ambition is what makes us good or bad but um, I I am a very ambitious person and I love very ambitious characters you know I love Saturnite and Monet because that is a defining virtue of both of theirs I think mm-hmm. is ambition now Monet and Courtney have a lot in common yeah <laughs> business lady special but yeah like I think you're really I think you're going to like X Corp that's a very important part, especially as a woman, like ambitious women are very important to me because um, I am one. And because you very much see female characters look at different paths, you know, there, there, mm-hmm. there are a lot of paths when you're a person who's not traditionally hold power. There are a lot of ways to look at, you know, power. Is it, is it something you, you know, do you want to get money like a man or do you want to do it the way you would do it? Or do you want to do it a completely different way? Do you, you know, do you work within the system or do you work outside of it? These are all things that when you're someone who's traditionally denied access to power, you know, like a woman or, you know, like a, in Monet's case, there are multiple things here at work. There's her status as a mutant, but also there are things more reflective of the real world, her status as a woman of color, as a Muslim woman. I explore that so much in X Corp. Uh, her her ambition, what she's willing to do or not do, and what she thinks is crossing a line or not. You know, a lot of what made X Corp click for me as a book was that relationship between Monet and Warren, and the differences between them, and the similarities between them. That thing I go back to again, that question of why we, you know, if you're doing something, ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. I think that's like a very a, a very Monet question, right? Like sharks swim because they have to eat. But sharks don't really like have a brain to stop and be like, wait a minute, could I do something else? Like people do. Right. Whereas Monet is choosing to continue to be a shark because yes. she likes it. Yeah. But what happens if you stop eating? Like, can you stop? Can you slow down and stop? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think 
I think she's a fascinating character. And I also think it's important to see, you know, stories of ambitious women who don't get, you know, punished for it, taken down a peg. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, and, and, you know, and you win. (laughs) You play the game and you win. Congrats. Yeah. Which is something of a contrast to the ringer that you've put Betsy through over the last year, which it was funny. We talked in the Saturday night episode. You said, I've got her on a journey. I think it's important for female characters to be allowed to fail. My hope is that by Excalibur 20, you'll be as thrilled with Betsy as you've ever been. We're now through Excalibur 20. I'm certainly very happy with where that arc has gone. Are you feeling good about where that's landed for the gala? Yeah, I feel really, really good about it. Like, I feel really grateful that I got, you know, 20 issues to do it. Yeah. But really... And, you know, obviously, you know, the first six issues of Excalibur are very much Betsy finding her footing and, you know, seven and eight are kind of like a, a side adventure. And it's like a bottle episode kind yeah, of. Yeah. And then really from nine, like really Excalibur nine is where what becomes Ten of Swords starts. Yeah. You can kind of read nine through 20 as this, you know. It's like one arc. Yeah. It's kind of one arc where it's like Betsy saying, OK, we've reached the point where I wake up in bed and I'm Captain Britain. So what? And it's like, well, you've still got a lot to do. Like, well, first of all, Britain doesn't like you. So that's probably something to deal with. Yeah. Congrats. You have the job. So what? What's the job mean to you? What do you want to do with the job? What is your life now? Part of Ten of Swords is figuring out what the job is. And part of Ten of Swords is her getting, you know, the second you've gotten the job, it's like someone's attempt to fire you right off the bat. Yeah. Right. The whole journey of that and after is like, we have to take it away from, like, we have to give it to Betsy, get her to accept it, and then accept it begrudgingly so that when we take it away from her. When we threaten to take it away, she's going to be like, no, 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 And it's now so inextricably tied with her Mm -hmm. that fighting to get herself back is now also fighting to get Captain Britain back. And like, the, the fight to be... Captain Britain is also the fight for herself and inextricably those things are now so it's not the previous journey has been fighting to be Betsy and Captain Britain now it's we know those things are the same and the journey from you know 9 to 20 is her realizing that to fight as one is to be the other and that you and Captain Britain are the same and that that journey back to yourself the kind of the last few issues have been about that journey back to the self and it's like okay you you got there and now you have to go and open the front door and show everyone you're home but Mm -hmm. before you do that you know you have to talk to Kanon right you have the situation with malice which you and Kanon can kind of do together as a lesson about forgiveness and bringing people back to themselves it also gives them, you know, a cool dual tech because they shouldn't, if they're going to spend all that time connected, they should get a cool power out of it. Yeah, like when they can touch, when they can like hold each other's weapons. Yeah, they can hold each other's weapons. Yeah, I'm hoping Betsy will pop up in Hellions as like a quid pro quo, like go do something there because I would love to see her and Alex interacting after yeah. 30 years. I think right? that would be really fun. And, you know, I'm really, I've now, you've like sold me on the Betsy Canon dynamic and I love how Zeb just had we just saw in the most recent issue of Hellions that before this story at Excalibur, Kanon murdered Betsy as a monster for like yeah. subjectively 50 years. So she worked out her agita. It, yeah, <laughs> which, it, it worked out really, really great, right? Because yeah. Like Zeb and I, I mean, I love Zeb. He's a fantastic writer. We've been, um, you know, we've been, when you know, showing each other our scripts. and Yeah, and, and she'd been communicating pretty yeah, closely about and, these and characters. It, just, it works out so perfectly because... 
I didn't think a knockdown drag out fight between Betsy and Kanon was the answer to this problem, but yeah, it wouldn't be productive. Yeah, but Kanon deserves the cathartic moment of rage. Yeah. And it just worked out really, really well that she gets to have it. And it feels like believable and great because Seb is such a good writer. It also works extra well because it's not the only thing going on in Kanon's life because we obviously like she's got, you know, Greco following her around and Yeah, which I'm obsessed with, which like knock me over with a feather if I had ever thought that I would, you know and also everything with your daughter and everything with Sinister and okay, this is not a Kanon podcast. I'm sorry. But 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 what were you saying? No, but continue. I, was, I do want to say just real quick, I called this way back. I read Hellions 2 before Hellions was even out for y'all. And I was like, Segovia is going to make everyone fall in love with Grey Crow. Like, <laughs> everyone's going to come out of this, like, hot for daddy Grey Crow because he's so good in that book. <laughs> yeah, he's really, and like, yeah, and they're both really, yeah, it's yeah, good. They're sexy it's a good, they're sexy. They're sexy. <laughs> they're sexy. And they're both like, we were really bad people who murdered a lot of people. And now we want to be good. How do we do that? You know, let's and it's like a good, it. yeah. let's bang about it and like, help Alex not kill himself in right. some way. Like, you know, like, 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 pull Alex out of traffic and then, yeah. you know, handle we'll, our business. Uh, we'll take a break every hour or two to, you know, make, make sure, sure that Alex hasn't like put his hand on the hot stove or whatever. <laughs> make Nanny do it. I'd love to see Betsy show up and be like, all right, I'll help you out with something. Like, as Conan's like, can you come help with something? And Betsy's like, yeah, I owe you one. And then she and Alex, like, have to, like, remember yeah. us. Betsy remember just has our to babysit time Alex so uh, Conan yeah. and John can go out. Threaten to kill him again. You know, like, that's just sort of, that's their vibe. Russ Marshalek writes, and I'm just going to read it because it just made me laugh. Hi, this is Russ Marshalek on Twitter. I do not understand the deal with Monet eating her brother. Thank you. And I hope that you now understand it after the character file, but I really did enjoy that question and the way it was phrased. So I just thought that right. I would read it. Christian Smith writes, hi, Connor and Teeny, with the exception of Jubilation, who already had the pre-existing fan base with the animated series and a tenure on the big team. Monet seems to be the only Gen X student that really graduated beyond that book. What is it about her character, do you think, that let her grow outside the Academy in a way that characters like Husk and Chamber never did, despite them both being in the main title at one point or another? Also, can we get Jubilee, Monet and Husk on panel with Emma together, as I honestly can't remember if it's happened since Gen X Volume 1 finished? Cheers, Pip Pip, and Tally Ho. Connor, now you can do some accents again with that line. I'm sorry, I should have read through all the way before I started reading it. <laughs> Tally Ho. I always like when the British listeners are like, please try to do my accent. And I'm like, it's going to be bad, but I'll try. But I will. Um, uh, that's I, I, I like that question a lot. I think, um, and you know, actually having having just reread some early Gen X and prep for this podcast so I can, cause I, I always, you know, I always want to come in fresh. I love that you do the homework. I do. I, well, at least I was like, God, I can't remember. The, like I, I was like, I've reread and reread X factors and and stuff, but I was like, I don't remember the last time I, I read Gen X. So I was like, I'm going to just reread the first volume. Um, and it's like, she really, she really is the Veronica. Like she doesn't seem to, she, she doesn't, she, the reason she graduates beyond the school is because like, she was never really there like she was the outside girl to begin with but it's like what i said about cordelia on buffy like yeah. she's the obvious character to spin off because she isn't as tied to the friend group it's like when monet is like call me and drives away and they're yeah. all like does she's, anyone have her number like well, she's you know. like the worldly one too right yes like, even within she's the one that it would be like you know how do we get a fake id and get into a bar and it's like oh well Monet can handle that. I, yeah, I've been in Europe. I've been to bars already. Like, <laughs> I, I'm 16 and I go to bars. I'll pay Europe. a forger. I have a guy. Exactly. Like, like I know. You know like... Yeah. Like, she's she's just seems, she's always the, the worldly one. 
she always seemed like a guest star, I feel like, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, especially because, you know, I think she was set up that way. In the sense that Lobdell intended for her to not be real and for her to go away halfway through the story. She's sort of like the special guest party member in like a JRPG. Yeah, who's like maybe- too powerful, right? And she's like not going to stay with the team. But then once they, once editorial was like, no, 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 we love this character. We have to keep this character. Then... They tried, I think, in part through her relationship with Everett to, like, ground her more in the group. But then they killed Everett. So it's like the last thing she wants to do is hang around with this class of students where all she's going to think about is, yeah, I let my guard down, let myself get into a relationship with someone and And he he was murdered. Yeah. Right. I know, I know that uh, we have we have differing love amounts of the the Bachelorette and Gen X, but like again, just like those early like those sink rainbows on those dark dark beautiful. Are I like, like that he's very rainbow again. I mean, yeah. that's what I was gonna say. Talk about a character who's making a comeback. Sink because he's been dead for twenty years, and Jonathan Hickman likes the character, so now the character's on the fucking X Men. That's how like you know when you ask. How is it? Why is it? What it really comes down to is something Evan Narcisse said that I always come back to on the Dazzler episode, which is that characters who are not the main characters, the Cyclops, Gene, Wolverine, Storm, characters who are not those characters need stewards. They need writers who are invested in the characters. And for good or for ill, because as I've said, I'm very mixed on X-Factor investigations overall. I think the fact that Peter David chose Monet and was like, I'm putting her on this book, and then the book was enormously popular, that was a huge help. Joe Casey put Chamber on the X-Men, but that run on X-Men didn't last very long. And then the next writer didn't care about Chamber. So you have to have a person in the writing room who gives a shit about character xyz for anyone who's not at the top of the a-list and i think that sink has now found that and i think that monet has been lucky enough that because she was so dramatic and fun and sexy and funny and cool to watch in action and all of that she has had a number of writers interested in using her yeah and that's how you keep a character in circulation, you know? Yeah, well, I think I think you're right, too, about stewards. But, like, when I look at, you know, and this is something I think Peter David does does well, is, like, he never seems, and maybe this is because he's, like, a TV guy, too, but, like, he never seems committed to one version of his character. Like, he's always, I always feel like when he writes characters that he, like, if he writes a character that he's written in another run earlier, mm-hmm. like Richter. It's like he's not afraid to evolve them and be like, this version of the character has been through shit since the last time you've seen them and like might be a kind of different person. And some people don't like that. I agree to some extent, but I do feel like Polaris, when she went back to X Factor, it was like nothing since the 90s had happened. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's not a perfect metaphor, but I yeah. feel like... <laughs> But I get what you're saying. I, I think you're... I certainly think, yeah, about Monet. Part of what made me fall in love with so many characters that he wrote in you know that x-factor investigations run is that so many of them were just very markedly different in that book than they had been before Mm -hmm. but it does it feels engaging and compelling it's not like who the fuck are all these people they're not at all it's just like they're just in a different book they act a different way and it's just like but they make sense and it makes sense in the like what's the noir detective version of these characters in m-town solving crime right and the version of them is like a little toned down a little darker a little more depressed than like more violent than the yeah yeah, more violent than like the four color version we might have seen of them it almost felt like a max book it really did and like i i think that that's something that i do as a writer and maybe maybe it's not for everyone is like the version of a character i write i want to 
have you ask questions about who, like when you see my Pete wisdom, I don't want you to be like, you know, okay, well, this is clearly the guy who's picking up right where we saw him last time. It's like some, some shit has happened to him. He's been through stuff. He's going to be a little different. And I know why that is. And you don't yet. And that's good because I don't want you to know every, like, like I'm not going to hold your hand. And you also don't want to just write the character Paul Cornell was writing or the character no. Warren Ellis was writing. You want to write your own take that makes sense, but that is bringing something new to it. Yeah, the character I love is not the one that either of them wrote. It's the one that I heard in my head reading what those guys wrote. Yes. And the one that I'm writing is not their version. It's the one that I heard in my head reading their versions because, you know, Paul Cornell writing Pete Wisdom and Warren Ellis writing Pete Wisdom, he has the same voice in my head. Right. And that guy is who I'm writing. Right. Not either of those guys' versions, you know? So I think it's a good move as a writer for people to pick up. When people pick up X Corp, they might have questions about what Angel's relationship is with Archangel or what Monet's relationship is with Penance, the very obvious question brought on by the cover that I want you guys to have. I want you guys to have that question. I'm not going to answer it right away because it's more compelling to have the question. Mm -hmm. Like it is more compelling for you to understand that the question is there and wonder. And when the characters are forced into choices, you know that they're struggling with that within. And you know that that's influencing them, but you don't know what they're going to choose. That's tension. That's story. Like Absolutely. Creating the question and not answering it is frustrating to comics fans but you guys that's narrative (laughs) that's how it's (laughs) supposed to feel (laughs) well here's a question on that note brett passy writes hey teeny canonically penance was a shell that housed first monet then the twins as monet and eventually had its own individual existence as hollow with a never revealed new host last seen in avengers academy is hollow still out there will she ever be addressed (sighs) you know (laughs) i read avengers academy which we probably know because we've seen me write Colin Bloodstone. Yeah. I Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, yeah. I'm kind of good with it. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm mean, hollow personally, thing. but you but know, that's not to say that's not to say that at some point I won't be writing a story and need to reach for something with mm-hmm. Monet or someone that knows her or someone that was in Avengers Academy, I'll need to reach for an element in a story and the element in hollow will be right there, you know? And I'll be like, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if like, listen, they're always merging and unmerging and whatever. Like maybe the penance that's inside Monet now is hollow. Yeah. I, There's all kinds of. The answer to any of those questions is like, those things are are there in the toy box and Mm -hmm. they're they're cool to reach for when they prove useful but like that isn't like a a a part of the lore i secretly love and i have in my back pocket no i'll admit that (laughs) yeah Sam Gladstone writes, Hi, Connor and Teeny. I bet you're glad you won't have to revisit Monet until either the Madrox episode, M-Plate episode, Sabretooth episode, or Jubilee episode. You're not wrong. Uh, Although Madrox is on the schedule. So that's, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, In regards to Monet, I'm curious as to how we might approach her as one of the few Muslim superheroes. Does she provide a good counterbalance to the more orthodox use of dust? Would you like to see her explore this more? Would scenes between her and Soraya have the same kind of weight that scenes between Kate and Magneto sometimes have? Or are we at a place where this is unneeded? Thank you every week for this show. It's always top of my list now. Well, thank you. I mean, I love I love all those questions. I think I'm just not the writer for them. You know, like I 
It is something that I'm aware of and it forms me. Um, like, for example, I, like before the first time I wrote Monet, I was really careful to make sure there were depictions of her drinking previously because I know that she's Before Muslim. you did that. Yeah. Right, and I was yeah. like, I don't want to be the first writer that shows her drinking alcohol if we, she hasn't previously been shown drinking alcohol. I mean, obviously she has, you know, she drinks champagne all the time, but like. All the time, but it's important to check because yeah, you don't want to be someone in who, the moment you, know, of, you know, in the moment of writing As her, a non-Muslim writer. Exactly. As a non-Muslim writer in the moment of writing her at the Hellfire Gala grabbing a glass of champagne, I realized that I have to do my due diligence and check to make sure that I'm not the first writer to depict her drinking alcohol because if that had been a choice before then I want to honor that and even if it hadn't been deliberate if she'd never been depicted drinking alcohol on panel I would probably well because her being a Muslim is a retcon exactly a reveal I guess you could say but it's not something that's established about the character until pretty late in the yes, x-factor investigations yeah run. it's in the x-factor run is when it's it's you know revealed it is something I am aware of at the best I can be as a white person who is thankful to know and, and work with Muslim writers and Muslim editors and such. But it's not something that I particularly tackle. And it's not because I don't think it's super interesting. This is kind of going back to what we were saying about like, you know, people tackling identity and stuff. Like I, even if you're someone who's listening to this and you're cynical about the idea of representation and you're like, I, you're one of those, I just want good story people. The good story is new, right? It's the stuff we haven't seen a hundred times. And I think the way we get that, one of the easiest ways we get new stories that we haven't heard a hundred thousand times is by opening new perspectives, opening the door, handing the pen and and putting in the writer's seat. I mean, if you're, I'm, I'm someone that I watch all of the best picture nominated movies every year. And like all of the best movies I've seen from the past couple of years have the thing in common where it's like it is, you know, written, directed, made by people who are outside of what we consider the cultural story norm. I'm not saying that those are the only good stories. I'm someone, like I said, I love a good Western. I love a good classic Hollywood movie. Right. I love a you know good old boring war story. But if you're just someone that looks for good stories, there are so many really good stories that are unique and new because they are just outside of the Western American white, whatever, mm -hmm. cultural perspective. So like, even if you're someone who doesn't understand the value representationally of having Monet and Dust on panel for whatever reason, I don't know why you wouldn't understand that. But if you're someone who's very cynical and you're like, or just someone who's reactionary, yeah, and there reactionary, are people yeah, and you're just, just like, I don't understand why you would need to, to see that. Yeah. Why are we getting politics in our comp yeah, when, like, realistic. as we pointed out, all the X-Men pretty much are nominal Christians and it's not political yeah, to do like, that, Yeah, but, like, politics, schmolitics, right? it's like, I don't know, like, the fact of it is, narrative is choice. It's watching characters make choices, and those characters' choices are often informed by their backgrounds. So seeing two characters from a background that might be foreign to you, like, I am not a Muslim woman, but seeing two very different Muslim women who are both superheroes, who are mutants, having to make decisions, and, and the, the fact that they have different backgrounds might inform those decisions, that's awesome that sounds fascinating please i i want to read that story it's not that i don't want to write that story it's that i know i don't have the there's just a story digging really deep into monet's muslim identity vis-a-vis -vis sarai or whatever is not a story that you want to read a muslim writer write that yeah because i want to read the true version of that i want to read you know the, the version that's going to teach me stuff i don't know um, and not be my false version of like trying to play. Like, I did some research. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, I don't want to read the anthropologist version. I want to read the, the the lived experience. The lived version. experience. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Ryan Rome writes, hi, Connor and Tini. I'm excited to hear you talk about M. I was about 13 when Gen X debuted. So as you've often said, I imprinted on those kids. How do you give a character whose mutation is basically perfection the weaknesses that keep her interesting? Love the show. Thanks. We go into this a little bit next corp one. Um, and like Connor said, you know, I think Monet's weaknesses are largely personal. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, 
she <laughs> is very proud and a, very much a perfectionist and very much doesn't like showing weakness. Uh, in X Corp, we kind of try to introduce some things to keep her interesting. And it's that sense of, okay, you've been brought together into this um, version of you that feels, it feels like you're more in control of this version of you, but it's new. It's, it's new to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're exactly right. The, the way you keep a character like that interesting is by finding what their weaknesses are. And sometimes those weaknesses aren't power related, you know? Yeah, well, we've pointed to Superman, right? As like, uh, you know, she is Superman-esque. How you make Superman interesting is that Superman chooses not to be a fascist right. lunatic when he could rule the world very easily. What makes him interesting is the choices he's making as a human being. And I think similarly, what makes Monet interesting is the choices she's making as a human being. Because if she were the angry, selfish person that she sometimes portrays herself as, as a defense mechanism, she would be doing really terrible things and she's not. Well, it's also kind of like funny because like as a result of like the era she was written in and the writer she was written by and everything, she could very easily be this like Exodus level villain. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Right? Like she kind of is like, very with with not much shifting like could have been that and i don't feel like oh you know the 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 cool version of her story is to turn her into that like quite the opposite i think she's disinterested in that and i think the interesting part of her is why you know and i i think it's not like you said it's also not the you know the remington steel thing of her having to be like angry and capable and girl power about it while warren's like an idiot and she's yeah, the girl no, boss it's like, like it's not that yeah they're a team yeah they're both carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders and the problem is is like they both think that they can carry the whole thing on their own yeah and neither of them can actually yeah. do it without the other one they're both just like just give me your half you know and right it's like, i liked the red oni blue oni comparison that you've yeah, made they're, they're very much that if you're not familiar with that like go to the tv tropes page or whatever you will lose like 15 hours to tv tropes but red oni blue oni is a japanese cultural idea that crops up in a lot of anime and manga but like literally in this case they both have a demonic form and warren is the blue oni type and has a blue one and yes. she is the red oni type and has a red one so there is a very funny Pairing them together is very obvious to the point where I'm shocked no one's done it before. Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned in another interview that like that's part of the the fun of this game is figuring out new ways to put together the pieces. And I knew I wanted Monet and Angel as part of this escort team. I knew I wanted them to lead it, but I didn't realize until like pretty late in the process of trying to figure out how to make this story happen that that's what I had. I was like, oh my god, like they're a perfect match. <laughs> like they're such yeah. a good duo. And realizing that really broke the story open. Are they going to kiss? I can't tell you that. (laughs) I had to try. Rafa Rodriguez asks, Monet's confidence and her genius level intellect make her a perfect choice to lead this team. What kind of leader will she be? Also, is her official superhero name Penance now or still M? I mean, I think Monet's leadership style is not micromanaging. I think she would rather just put the best people in charge and trust them. Like, I think she just... She, there's a line in, in number one where she tells Madrox, she's like, come with me. I need someone I can trust. And he's like, oh, like you trust me? And she's like, yeah, but I don't trust a lot of people. But luckily you can be a lot of people when I need you to be. Like her whole thing is like, I only want to have people that I trust around me because I don't want to micromanage and I don't want to worry about telling you what to do. I just want to set it, forget it. So I think her <laughs> leadership style is just don't hire anyone that can't do the job. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, as far as her her superhero name, you know, I've always got something to say about names. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd say read the book. That, that's a read the book one. <laughs> 
this is just a note from Khalid, who's written in before, who's hilarious. Uh, hello, Connor Teeny Zalagang and distinguished panel of judges. As a young black Arab queer kid growing up in the Arabian Gulf, Monet is a character I spent a lot of time Googling when I was first getting into the X-Men. Part of my love for her was the way in which she both stood to represent people in the diaspora and the weight of excellence, while at the same time having her origin incorporate themes of responsibility, family, sacrifice, and triumph intrinsic tropes of Arab cultural folklore and storytelling. She's operated within the themes, but I can't really think of when we've seen her interact with specific intersections. I know it's a difficult balancing act for any writer who wants to explore it, but I'm wondering if that aspect of her will be explored now that she's fully taken her rightful place in the Krakoan green carpet. Yours truly, Khalid, aka Dr. Chase. You've talked about this a little bit, that you don't want to get too deep into it because you don't think it would necessarily be authentic. But the sense I'm getting is that Monet's status as someone who is marginalized in a lot of different ways beyond, for example, the way that Warren is just as a mutant is something that you've been thinking a lot about yeah. in this book. Yeah. And also, I mean, also like Khalid, like, thank you for like, you know, writing up that question. Like that's... um like that's that's exactly what I mean when I talk about how Monet's backstory seems complex to us, but is actually because of a result of like, you know, editorial nonsense, it becomes geographically complex. But what you end up with is a character who feels very real because of all these intersecting identities, right? Because there are real people writing in who are like, I I am some of these intersecting identities. I from this part of the world. I think that's cool that, you know, the the quote unquote, you know, accident of making her complicated really just makes her less of a Street Fighter character than some of the others because real people are, you know, my mom was from here and my dad was from here and they met in this other country. And then so we lived there. And so I had a brother who was from here, you know, like that's, yeah, that's real life. But I think the biggest thing about Monet's identity that to me, I, I do try to constantly remember is that she's not American. That's something that is, it's harder for me to say, uh, you know, I am an American. It's its not like I can put on the not being from America hat, but it's like, no matter how much decentering of my like, you know, like whiteness or the fact that I, you know, I'm from a Christian family, like no, no matter how much of, of decentering of that I do, I, I that doesn't grant me access into, you know, the, the things that Monet's identity would like it but but I can say Monet is not American in so many ways she is such a and, and Warren is so all-American and so yeah he's like, like the American poster boy right yeah so like the fact that Monet is not American is something that I I try to remember with her a lot and I try to to, to assign to her a lot of the like thinking and, and values and um attitude that I get from the many friends I have who are not American. She's very European. She has yeah. like a very European sensibility. Like Americans are so provincial to her. Like there is kind of that. But there's also this thing where like, you know, she doesn't always feel quite European either. Because exactly. It's always going like, to be welcomed by that, Europeans. Yeah, she's very, she's very, you know, not European in a lot of ways. And I think that there's a perspective that I find really fascinating is her being not American, her being a woman of color and her being very wealthy. I think there are a lot of rooms she would walk into and I think there are a lot of American men who would look at her and be like, oh, I'm going to discount her. And she's like, I, you're not even on my radar. Like, yeah, I'm not even thinking about you. Right. I often think about what her accent would sound like because sure. like she's impeccably educated. Her English is probably I think it sounds perfect, however she but I'm wants like, it to. yeah, but that's what I'm saying is I bet sometimes she sounds more French. I bet sometimes she sounds more Algerian. I bet sometimes she sounds more like British public school educated, like yeah. depending on who she's talking to. Yeah. This is why she and Emma are interesting because they're both performative 
in very different ways, but also in similar ways sometimes. Yeah. I love when Warren quotes Emma in X Corp 1, when Mm -hmm. he says, as a friend of mine once said, the whole world is watching us now. I like the idea of X Corp and the Hellfire Trading Company sort of existing parallel because Monet and Emma are similar people who have very different MOs. And I think that seeing how they operate parallel to one another is going to be really interesting. It was interesting in Uncanny when she became White Queen for a minute because it was like, you know, you can sort of see how that would work. Teeny, thank you so much for joining me again. It's your third visit to the pod. Do you have anything else you want to say about Monet and X Corp for the listeners before we start to wrap up? Uh, Just that, you know, part of the cool thing about writing X-Men and being a, a comics fan is getting to like find things that mean a lot to you and bring them back and wanting to bring back the X Corporation was one of the first things I wanted to do when I was asked to work in the X-Men office is one of my favorite concepts from new X-Men It's my favorite favorite things uh so it's been cool thanks thanks for checking out my uh my take on it I hope you guys dig it and thanks for having me Connor of course anytime well thank you again everyone should pick up X Corp number one and of course continue to read Excalibur we're all very excited for the Hellfire Gala I got a lot of emails saying that people want Betsy and Rachel to make out so I'm just letting you know that that's something people have said (laughs) good you're very aware i know of that so i'm just saying people like it thank you again we'll talk soon we'll talk soon bye you can follow cerebro on twitter and instagram at cerebrocast you can follow me on twitter at dream of organon or on instagram at connor goldsmith you can find all of the episodes at cerebrocast.com the official landing page for the podcast where you can also find a link to the cerebro fan discord please join the conversation but don't bring any bad vibes you can also find a link there to patreon.com slash cerebrocast where you can get instant access for five dollars a month to the bonus episodes bonus episode three is coming soon next week's episode will feature steve orlando my friend and client the celebrated comics writer who recently made his debut at marvel we are going to be talking about marrow a big star of the 90s x-men it is a little too late for you to send in questions because we recorded early this week That's a good reason to follow the podcast on Twitter where I announced in advance so we could get more questions in. That said, thank you for writing in to cerebrocast at gmail.com. It's always a treat to hear from you guys. I'd also like to wish Eid Mubarak to Muslim listeners. Thanks to the many of you who wrote in this week about Monet. I know this character is very important to a lot of people. I hope that you had a wonderful holiday. Thank you so much for your support, as always, and until next time, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.